0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And,
0: and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Princess Bride.
1: Wesley had no money for marriage, so he packed his few belongings and left the farm to seek his fortune across the sea. The more of the land gave Humpering the right to choose his bride. The fabric will make
2: the prince suspect that Guilderians have abducted his love.
3: You never say anything about killing anyone.
2: I just happen to look behind us and something is there. He's obviously seen us with the princess and let's therefore die. Pick up one of those rocks, get behind the boulder. The minute his head is in view, hit it with the rock!
3: I is not a sportsman, eh?
0: I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife
4: to murder. I'm swapped. <laughs> <laughs> me. Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for?
1: Well, who says life is fair? Where is that written? Fencing, fighting, chases, escapes, giants, monsters, torture. Revenge, true
5: love, miracles. Look, I'm retired. I might kill whoever you wanted me to miracle.
6: He's already dead.
5: I'll take a look.
0: This episode was one we've been dallying with for years. The Princess Bride is one of the most emphatically beloved movies and books from its era. And given that this was the late 80s, that's saying something. It means so much to so many that we asked you why it appeals. We'll be getting to that section in due course, but the veritable storm of replies suggests that this will be a show listened to avidly. We've been commissioned by Chris Finnick, He fixed it for the rest of you, so we have no more excuses not to do The Princess Bride. Sometimes, as with Willow, when we love something that much, it becomes intimidating to revisit for deep analysis. We're always scared it will be emptier than we perceived it as children. If, for some reason, you haven't seen this movie... I feel like this is one of those shows where it's best to have done the homework and come in prepared. Some of our other shows, I I genuinely feel like we're not spoiling the film so much as sharpening up your uh, observations on it so that you'll get a better experience out of it the next time you watch it. So if you've not seen it, sometimes it can really prepare you to, to get the most out of a movie. In this case, I feel like just watch it first. There is a high chance you will be delighted. So go and find The Princess Bride, watch it and return to us. With us on the deck of the ship of the Dread Pirate Roberts are several disreputable knaves. We have Victoria Grieve, a veteran of these shows. Thanks for having me. Brendan Agnew, a similarly familiar voice. Greetings. And from the Detective Pikachu episode, uh, Mackenzie, who was also on the Mary Poppins show. Mackenzie Easton, hello. Hello, hello. And her partner, and partner in crime for the Rainbow Connection Muppets podcast, Nathan Bertram
7: inconceivable
0: (laughs) so the princess bride was written as a novel in 1973 by william goldman the screenwriter who would also pen butch cassidy and the sundance kid in 1969 that was the very cowboy movie that my mother and father saw on their first date and had goldman been less of an amazing writer i might not exist to convey these words to you dear listener if they'd watched how green was my valley instead i might not (laughs) exist The Princess Bride is a clever spin on fairy tales, delivering unusual takes on long-established tropes, the manner of which will be the meat of this episode. The book drifted around Hollywood for some 14 years before being turned into this film in 1987. Very sensibly, Goldman adapted the screenplay himself, slightly changing the focus for the new format, but keeping a great deal of the story very much intact. Often, conversations play out word for word, because it's hard to improve on near-perfection, aside, of course, from perfection. Perfection. <laughs> A young girl falls in love with a farmhand who departs to seek his fortune. He is reported dead and she sadly agrees to marry a rotten prince. She is kidnapped by ruffians as a plot by her betrothed to start a war. But the farmhand comes back alive to rescue her. They are both recaptured and the farmhand is mostly killed again only to be brought back by the reformed ruffians to recover the girl, confound the prince, and complete a revenge along the way. All this is read in the film by a grandfather played by Peter Falk. Uh, One last thing, to an obnoxious boy with a cold, forming the framing device to toy with the narrative in pleasant and amusing ways. In the book, Goldman is adapting a non-existent fairy story about fictional places like Gilderland and Florin, and the original book was written in the original Florinese by fictional Florinese author S. Morgenstern. His remit is... Goldman's remit is to cut out the boring bits and just feed us the good parts. There are multiple footnotes where he laments the reams of pages utilised to satirically poke fun at the royalty of the day by dwelling on their silly pageantry. This is pablum we get to rush past as we leapfrog from death-defying stunt to dazzling combat to battle of wits. It's never entirely established when the story is set, which allows for an abundance of anachronisms. The language used is extremely charming, frequently colloquial, and it matches the film in its offhand manner. And we are going to go moment to moment, character to character, element to element, to explore why this ended up so ridiculously pleasing, so beloved, and probably Rob Reiner's best film. But then again, it's up against things like Stand By Me. He, he, And this is Spinal Tap. He has done so many wonderful films.
8: Talk about a legendary run in the '80s. That guy was on.
0: Absolutely. So the the meta narrative, um, like, uh, so so, so how does this film go about itself? We'll just assume that everyone's now seen it. But what makes it different to every other kind of uh, fairy tale, uh, as most others from the day and a lot of them now.
8: Well, the biggest difference, I think, between The Princess Bride and other bo- both other stories of its kind and the source material itself is the film decides to dig into the empathy for the characters and make the audience less of a um, you're in on the joke of this side of conveying this narrative and more of a we're going to go on this journey together uh, the, the book is is very bitingly satirical and there's almost a a cold distance between it because it's not quite like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy but it's taking a similar approach hmm. like like you said Alex, it's, it's got the footnotes it's got the you know the the very direct second person narration of like you don't need to hear this bit this bit is dumb and boring um and there's there's also just a lot more sharper edges on the characters that make them less pleasant to be around. The the film, because Goldman is adapting something, and because he was already a very good screenwriter when he did this, he took what worked the bones of the narrative, and he took a slightly differently angled approach to instead of make this be a... It, it could have been a complete farce, but he brings a lot more warmth. the The frame story of the child and the grandfather is basically him laying everything out for the audience like Edgar Wright style saying this is what you're going to get invested in you might think it's silly just like Fred Savage does but we're going to get there and by the time we're done with this kissing book story you're going to want that kiss mom
9: can't you tell me I'm sick you're sick that's why he's here he'll pinch my cheek I hate that
3: maybe he won't
1: hey how is this sick huh
9: i think i'll leave you two pals alone
1: i brought you a special present
9: what
1: is it open it up a book that's right when i was your age television was called books and this is a special book it was the book my father used to read to me when i was sick and i used to read it to your father and today i'm going to read it to you sports in it are you kidding fencing fighting torture revenge giants monsters chases escapes true love miracles
10: doesn't sound too bad i think there's another perspective as well at least in the medium of the kind of fantasy you're talking about because it's really hard to divorce the princess bride from modern fantasy RPGs, because I think a lot of modern Dungeons & Dragons actually like is informed by the Princess Bride in a way that people don't necessarily recognize. Like if they're younger and they haven't seen the Princess Bride and they don't quite understand the kind of like jokey nature of this like band of misfits fighting against some kind of authority. It even has like an authorial voice in the form of uh, the grandfather that would be kind of like the dungeon master. And as I was watching it again yesterday, I just kept being struck by like how many of my personal Dungeons and Dragons games were heavily informed by the Princess Bride as well as those of many of my friends and it just makes me think that maybe the kind of fantasy that is most similar to this is that kind of narrative not necessarily the fantasy narrative from novels or even other movies
11: Uh, I think for me one of the things that sets the Princess Bride apart from a lot of other fantasy is how kind of small the scale is in comparison so a lot of the most popular fantasy ends up dealing with you know wars that actually do happen as opposed to this one where they're kind of attempting to set up a big battle that just doesn't happen because they avoid it by being intelligent about things for once there's a much more grounded kind of sense to it where it's just about these like four guys and they're not on some grand quest the grandest quest is well we should get my girlfriend back from that asshole. She's been set up to marry because she's not (laughs) into him and everything else is pretty much just clucky survival on a small level, as opposed to there's no chosen one narratives. There's no grand quests. There's no like ultimate evil. There's one real jerky prince and a few different people who have to deal with that problem.
12: I think this sets as well, a very early, um, Protocol for if you're going to do something that's fantasy and have this level of meta humor in it, then you need to be incorporating it into the story in a very blended way. It's other attempts that I've seen at fantasy stories that go out of their way to be funny generally speaking, the jokes stick out like a sore thumb. They're not part and parcel of the story. The, the jokes don't make sense in the world the story is set in, and that's why they don't quite gel. Whereas with this, the vast majority of the humour dovetails with the characters. Everybody knows what everybody's talking about. There's nothing in there that's a, a, a jokey aside to the audience. It's all there for the characters within the story
8: you're very right about that the the way that for one the novel being translated quote unquote from florinese and the the film with the grandfather skipping back and forth and and you know, do doing the thing that people who are reading stories to their children sometimes do and well i'm going to you know give more emphasis to this or less emphasis to that it it creates a a baseline level of this is the type of fiction we're in even though you've got the meta humor, even though you've got some modern colloquial things, it it all feels very set in a reality. Um, the other thing is that it's it's got like f- three different stories going on at once because you've got the the almost Harlequin esque romance of the oh the the buttercup and Wesley and those pirates and oh no. And he's back from, he's back from the dead. And then you've got like the, the three kidnappers. Yes.
12: Harlequin is exactly (laughs) what I think when I see that shirt. (laughs) I mean that's that's part of one
8: of the things that he's sort of riffing on with with the the original novel, and then you have Vasily's like gang of of hired thugs in their own sort of like scrappy running around trying to start wars, and then you have Prince Humperdinck and Count Rugen in their like you know proto Game of Thrones you know chess against kingdom sort of things, but somehow Goldman both in the in the book, but especially in the way he balances things in the screenplay makes everything feel of a piece even though it would be so easy for all of these things to spiral off in their own direction and he does all of this in 99 minutes which is bananas by like modern screenwriting standards goldman
0: himself said if you can if you can't get a movie finished in an hour and 50 you be, you'd better be david lean which is it's kind of drawing a line in the sand Um, it's, it's quite a, he's very frank and offhand. If you listen to his commentary, he's, he, he opines that, um, Hollywood will convince you that there is a methodology to making movies, that they know what's going to be a hit and what's not. In truth, in actuality, it is almost entirely random. We do not know what is going to have a sudden massive appeal to people. for. The same as when we covered Hellboy 2. We were like, if this had been a Marvel film and it hit at the right time, it might have been huge. But it wasn't, and it wasn't.
12: And if a black cat was facing south on a Sunday.
0: Yeah. Also, I'm glad that you mentioned Game of Thrones, so that uh, I don't have to be the one to it to invoke it. Game of Thrones feels like this ain't your mama's Lord of the Rings. Only it obviously takes the uh, direct meta narrative out. But what plays out in Game of Thrones is in itself a meta narrative take on fantasy, where it's like you didn't expect this character that you love to get horribly killed. Like at the, if it was Game of Thrones, at the end, Wesley would have his head caved in while Buttercup screamed, and it would be like, yeah, see, evil wins. Bye. It's interesting that the film has a happier ending than the book because uh, Gold, Goldman uh, says kind of, well, you know, I, I want to say it's a happy ending, but these guys would have been worried for, from this point onwards just in case Humperdinck came after them. But I like to think that they display enough nous in the uh, film that they would be ready for whatever um, troubles lay before them. That's Ultimately, that's what happy endings do kind of reinforce for us that they're not really endings. They're just kind of statements that we've bested these troubles and we're still alive. We can probably get through what the future holds for us.
7: Mm. Yeah, uh, when you're talking about fantasy, one of the things that you always have to come back to is what is the the actual fantasy that is being delivered within the story? Mm. And the thing with The Princess Bride is that the fantasy that is at the core of it is the idea that true love conquers all. Mm. And that is what it constantly comes back to in the end is that if you, are, if you have true love, then you know death is just a stepping stone. You can get over that because you are <laughs> destined to be together. And everything that revolves around uh, Wesley and Buttercup in the movie revolves around getting those two back together.
0: It is kind of thumbing its nose at the Reaper and going, yeah, you can keep killing Wesley, but he'll keep coming back like this zombie prince.
11: (laughs) Which I think is kind of poignant if you look at the framing story of an old grandfather telling the story to his grandson he loves very much when he's almost definitely going to die not long in the future.
7: And the ending to the frame story really emphasizes that because the final line that the grandfather delivers to Fred Savage is, as you wish. It it brings that true love motif into the real world as a familial love rather than the romantic love that is focused on in the fictional story that is the Princess Bride.
8: And I think the reason that works, and the reason this lands for so many people, in spite of having something as easy a target uh, as true love conquers all being one of its central theses, is that the characters have to really put in the elbow grease to make it work. Like this isn't a true love conquers all because you say it does. It's true love conquers all because sometimes you got to climb fists and wrestle giants and have sword fights and get stabbed and you know, do all this crazy shit. And then you've got a moment on horseback to breathe and get some smooches in before you have to keep running from the prince it's like like you said it's it's got a it, it's not a happy ending in the sense that it ends but it's got a satisfying conclusion in that, that we are now at a point where we can rest for a moment and there's road in front of us but we have the means to continue on and that's that's something that both like resonates easily with with audiences just in general um because it's very Uh, very, like, applicable to, like, oh, yeah, this is kind of life. Um, But also, like, right now it feels extra extra appropriate Mm. (laughs) for reasons. Mm.
12: So it's less true love conquers all and more true love will motivate you to conquer whatever is in front of you.
10: Yeah. Now that you've mentioned Game of Thrones, I've just been thinking about how the archetypal representation of so many of the characters in this movie are... Not as archetypal as you would think, because like, Fezig is the big strong guy, the big brute, as mm-hmm. it were, but actually is pretty smart. The whole rhyming game, like, he's very rhymes. gentle. Um, <clears throat> Inigo is like a cell sword, so you would think that he would be you know kind of brutal no mercy but in actuality he's very professional he's very kind even to the people that he is supposed to be fighting and and killing and then Vizzini is supposed to be the representation like the archetype of like the intelligent mastermind and he's really not
9: <laughs> he's uh, just very pompous he
12: talks himself yeah. into a corner
10: well it and that's the thing about the battle of wits he's right he mm. can't drink either of them but he doesn't understand, but but he's in like a box of the rules that he set forth that he knows better than anybody else, and it's just automatically going to be his downfall and like all three of those characters are really supposed to be pivot like like cr- placed as archetypes, but they're not playing directly to those archetypes when you start looking into them, even you know humperdinck is supposed to be this like <clears throat> ruthless. Uh, like ruler but in actuality he's extremely like selfish narcissistic and cowardly again not related to anything today no. couldn't draw any parallels but honestly
0: Humperdinck um, has more depth and poise
12: yeah oh yeah he's now it is
0: time
8: way. for us all to inject
0: ourselves with bleach <laughs> yes.
12: and he looks better um, in a sky blue doublet
8: and Count now, I'll tell you I've been doing some research on iocane powder and
0: uh, it's really good for you it's amazing clears it up in an hour
8: uh, oh. It's so beautiful.
10: I uh, ask. Yeah.
0: Not, not that we're going to date this show. Like, well, Okay, let's. Uh, no, I'll, it's I'll fine. future-proof it. Isn't it a shame that Trump fell in front of that moving train, drank a wine goblet with Iocane powder in it, kissed it's a person a- who was riven with COVID-19? <laughs>
10: it's okay, Alex. I'm sure it won't be as dated four years from now either. But... Um... <laughs> If you look at even Count Rugen, who is supposed to like, he's positioned as the second in charge. Like the like, he's into torture. He's like the dark evil guy behind the throne, but he's actually way more of like, like an academic. Mm. Like I feel like I've worked with this guy uh, in some ways where he's he's like a scientist who just ethics. What are those? But it's just yeah. I'm I'm writing a treatise on pain, and I need you to be very honest with me. Like it's it's almost incredible how poised he is when he's supposed to be like the sneering villain what you're describing
0: is that the main characters in this pretty much everyone who gets more than three lines has their own internal life they are they have stuff going on that suggests that when they walk stage left they've got another life there for them to return to
10: Mm -hmm. i I mean hell even some of the bit parts like miracle max Mm. and his wife like you feel like that relationship is like weirdly lived in and that they have a lot more going on beyond their like one scene and they they do a really good job, but it, but it is still playing on the archetypes of what you expect, but slightly subverting it rather than the game of Thrones, throwing it all out. There really (coughs) isn't a wasted character in this movie. No.
7: no. Yeah. And the characters really are what make this movie so special Mm. And the sense that the, the dynamics between the actors are great, but the movie also has this sense of looseness that is really an illusion, because when you look at the script, it is incredibly airtight, and it's almost, a lot of the dialogue is taken, like you said, word for word from the book, but the way that it's delivered and the way that it's acted and the physical acting in the movie has this very loose, very natural feel to it that, like, it emphasizes both the humor and the character
0: and yet for all its natural uh, delivery there are seemingly purposefully creaky looking sets Like there are times when something looks really setty and uh, you can—that uh, that is definitely a matte painting and I'd say maybe the weakest element of this film could maybe be interpreted as not weak at all and that's Mark Knopfler's score which has this kind of bah, 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 at times uh, feel to it it's deliberately meant to evoke almost a kind of a cheesy sort of adventure, something that you would have been shown, um, you know, on TV where the production values were really low and they could only afford a Bon Tempe organ to sort of set the musical tone and like it, if you listen to the score, score it's not uh, there are bits of it that are really lovely but it's not the same sort of score that you'd listen to as say something like by James Newton Howard or Howard Shaw. It doesn't have that kind of melodiousness to it. It's actually quite annoying at times but everything seems ever so slightly more stylized to make it feel like you're kind of watching a play unfold, a mm-hmm. pantomime.
12: I, I think the the moment for me that communicates what you're talking about with the score there is Wesley reaching the top of the cliff and fighting Inigo. Mm-hmm. Because that set, that little sort of ruins that they fence around... Looks like it's made out of cardboard. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they haven't tried very hard to disguise the fact that it's made out of cardboard. But as a result, it looks like the 1930s Errol Flynn, Robin Hood type era that they are very, very deliberately emulating with that fight. So those those moments of slight cheesiness and slight uh, looking like they did this because they couldn't afford better or they they didn't have better available actually feels like they've done it on purpose Mm. to communicate something specific. I I think the thing with the score is most modern
11: film score that you'd think of as as beautiful or things that you'd want to listen to is designed to emphasize the emotion and set Mm. the tone of the story, whereas the score in this is almost exclusively used as a pointer for the comedy and the action. Like, Mm. the beats of the score are set to the actions on the screen, as opposed to being, like like, more emphasized on the narrative and the emotion and the tone, with the exception of things like the love theme which is probably one of the prettier parts you mentioned earlier
0: yeah it's a a languid kind of background everything is comfortable type piece of music
8: the the overall sense that it sort of builds is um like you said sharon there's um something to do with the sets where they feel like they've been constructed specifically for this purpose the 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 ruins on top of the cliffs of insanity are the perfect place to have a sword fight because they've been built just for a sword fight where you can jump up on rocks and climb stairs and do acrobatics on random bars that are there for no <laughs> reason. It's There's, there's a, a sense of artificiality that makes it feel slightly theatrical in that it's like a theatrical production. Mm. And the thing about a theatrical production is that it invites the audience in. It's so participatory mm. compared to, say, the... Um, The complete um, immersiveness of like a film uh, approach, which is what you would have most filmmakers go with. But because this is so much about it's not exactly theater, but it's not movie making the way we're used to. And so it makes the audience feel drawn in and welcome and a part of it. In a way that they wouldn't be under another circumstances.
0: With Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, Jackson's remit was always Middle Earth exists and we just have to uncover it. Just scrape away a little layer of New Zealand and we'll find it was there all along. With this, it's going balls out at the beginning saying this is a story within a story. So everything is presented to you through that filter. So you are asked effectively to take it on board. And it, with the 13 million that they had, they did a hell of a lot with.
12: Mm. I suppose it's the equivalent really of the the Disney motif of having a book or yeah. something at the beginning or curtains drawing back to indicate you're going into a story world here, but they play it out throughout the whole thing. And the other um, element of the, the score as well is that it is designed to be interrupted there's a handful of moments where the the music just cuts off and you could almost hear the record scratch because fred (laughs) savage is about to say something
8: (laughs) is this a kissing book
12: yeah
0: (laughs) oh that the shrieking eels
12: and And in several other
10: points there's actually like diegetic action that takes that, that matches up with the the beats in the soundtrack like Mm. sword clangs and things of that nature Mm. but uh, real quick uh, brendan really well observed because the whole time i was watching this again i was struck by how much it gave me the same feeling of being at a renaissance festival where like the outfits are giving you like the verisimilitude of a kind of fantasy medievalism as well as the sets as well as the music and all of these these things that draws you in that really makes it participate like it it felt more like I was walking around the set of a Ren Faire than just, like, watching any old movie.
8: And because of that, they have to, like, add this banality to the characters that um, that you guys were talking about earlier, specifically with Humperding and Rugen. They're, like, boring bad guys in a way. They're, like, talking about schedules and having to, like, deal with underlings and, like, yeah, I've got this paper to write, so could you give me your feedback? <laughs> and it's almost and small like
12: small talk. Oh my god. Well, if you haven't got your health, you haven't, haven't got, got anything. anything.
8: It's like <laughs> Bill Lundberg walking into a fantasy thing that's like there's there's just enough like boring mundanity that you buy this extra bigotude that they're bringing with everything else. Something that's
7: encompassed by like what everybody's been talking about is the idea that is baked into the framing device which is that what we are seeing of the story is filtered through the kid's imagination. So everything that we're seeing is The Princess Bride, the book, as imagined by Fred Savage's character. And so we get that artificiality, we get that uh, that like high-adventure sort of serial nature because we're seeing this through the eyes, through the imagination of a like 10-year-old boy. And this is how he would imagine this kind of stuff. It is informed by ideas about medievalism and fantasy taken in through pop culture and especially when we're talking about the 80s through the kinds of movies and books that were coming out at the time during this fantasy boom
8: which is why the giant rats look like someone in a rat suit because that's how you would get giant rats at that time <laughs> exactly
11: <laughs> okay this is a minor point does fred savage's character just not have a name the uh, boy. Called the kid, isn't he? the, the boy. boy sir. Okay. <laughs> we'll keep calling him Fred Savage then. Well, If it isn't little
1: uh, boy!
13: What are the three terrors of the fire swamp? One, the flame spurt. No problem. There's a popping sound preceding each. We can avoid that. Two, the lightning sand. But you were clever enough to discover what that looks like, so in the future we can avoid that too.
3: Firstly. What about
13: the R.O.S.'s? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist.
0: Actually, has anyone uh, read the book? And if so, what were your favourite bits that didn't quite make the film?
11: Oh, uh, for me, the emphasis of just how messed up the prince is with his like zoo of torture, which I think is only not in the movie because it would be very, very expensive.
10: Mm. Yeah, that's the... Uh, it's been so long since i 've read the book that the only thing I remember is that zoo, that whole maze thing because I think in the book there's there 's a scene when Inigo and Fezzik are trying to get into the pit of despair and instead of finding the you know the secret knot to open the door, mm. they end up going through the entire like menagerie all like twenty levels or whatever, and it spends like eight pages talking about a spider that Enigo just steps on and then <laughs> And and then it just fast forwards through them just tearing hell through the rest of it to get to the fun part. Yeah. It's just it's the only part about the book that I remember like pretty specifically. The other
11: gag that I remember from the book that I always liked was there's a section where he goes off about how they had to uh, do a lot of legal like gerrymandering essentially to get Princess Buttercup to be a princess before the wedding on like technicality reasons that is <laughs> cut from that version, which I just thought was. A very funny like side joke of of like yeah that's the kind of like nonsense you'd have to do but it's not necessary for this story so let's just skip it.
0: There's a neat bit in, uh, well which anyone who's read the book will uh, remember, when they meet up uh, after just before the fire swamp after uh, v- uh, Vizinha is, de- is dead um, and it cuts in the book and says you don't need to see uh, Wesley and Buttercup reuniting and then there's a footnote that says, look, some people clearly do want to see it. I, The original S. Morgenstern uh, version does not go into detail on this, but I wrote my own three pages. So if you want these three pages, just write to the following address. And about 10,000 people did write to the following address. And they all got sent... Uh, uh, just a piece of paper that was kind of a letter from uh, Goldman talking about how because of legal loopholes, uh, they, they he wasn't actually allowed to tell you exactly what happened. It was something along the lines of um, sort of like hinting at uh, uh, little pleasantries that uh, Buttercup and uh, Wesley exchanged. But it's, it's effectively advertising a bit of the book is missing and that you can have it if you want. And uh, yeah for people who have actually got that original letter, it's something of a keepsake.
8: He goes so deep into the weeds with this joke. Uh, like one of my favorite things was just him going off about how Indigo was was trained, and you've got this little short thing about how he he becomes a not a master of the sword, but a wizard, which is mm. the slightly off center, better than a master, but with a you know with less control. Um, it's it's this whole thing that's just like a cute little Indigo story. Um, but my favorite part of the book isn't actually part of the Princess Bride. It's included in most collections of the Princess Bride Buttercup's book. Buttercup's Baby? About Buttercup's Baby, specifically mm. the fictitious, semi-real account of him trying to get the rights to, quote-unquote, translate Buttercup's Baby, the lost sequel, from the Morganstern estate and the country officials of Florin, including... <laughs> including like this long drawn out thing where he's like writing to Stephen King because Stephen King's family <laughs> is from Florin and they're mad that, and they're mad that Goldman changed stuff because that's their culture it goes fucking nuts but it's really funny to read
0: it's very fourth-wall-breaking. That would be why there's a whole uh, other cut of uh, Deadpool 2, which purloins Fred Savage and, and effectively uses a, uh, a grown-up child as a framing device to feed children the grotesqueness of, uh, of what happens in Deadpool 2. It's not the best version, but it is amusing, and I'm glad to have it. Psst.
14: Wakey-wakey, frosted flaky. Hey, brought you a special present. Come on. Storytime, Chicken Nugget. Rise and shine. Here we go. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Welcome back.
9: What's going on? Wait a minute. Where am I?
1: You
14: dressed me. I did. I'm a big fan of bears. I'm not wearing pants. When's the last time you saw a bear wearing pants? What What the f- Wait, da, 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 da. Easy now, Hey. The only F-bomb we're using around here is Fred Savage. Now, I want you to take a deep breath and listen to me very carefully, Frederick. You're in a PG-13 version of Deadpool 2, which means we only get two sh-t, one and a glass of white wine. Are you bleeping yourself? You bet your voice and little I am. That seems weird that you would do that yourself. Please stop that. Sorry. Did you reconstruct the bedroom set from the Princess Bride? Inconceivable! Oh, God. Yeah, I was wanted to say that. Felt real good. Why am I here? Well, the reason that you're voluntarily here is that so I could read you the story of Deadpool 2 filtered through the prism of childlike innocence. I'm a grown And nobody man. does childlike innocence like you, Fred. Nobody. I need you almost as much as you need me. I don't need you at all. You need me to untie you once we're done. Hey, easy, sugar mouth. This thing will go all day, all right? Lithium ion batteries. Hey, you are going to love this story. I promise you. It's got fencing, fighting, revenge, giants, monsters, true love,
7: and miracles. Now, once upon a time... Yeah, that framing device is probably my favorite element of the book. I am the kind of person that really loves to see kind of the nuts and bolts of how stories are built especially older stories i have started reading the entire like history of middle earth series which is this long editorial starting with tolkien's oldest notes and working chronologically forward assembled by his son and what goldman does with the book is he commits so hard to creating this fiction wherein there is an S. Morgenstern who did write this story in this foreign language, and he is going through all of this work to translate and abridge it and tell it to a new generation to the degree that when I was a kid, I did not know that it was fictional, and I spent possibly <laughs> days searching the internet, trying <laughs> so to right track now. down a copy of the original S. Morgenstern, Princess Bride, and <laughs> I... Like, I just love that. I love the richness of how committed he is to the framing device.
10: It's funny because I went the other way. I assumed the book was a novelization of the movie and had come out after the mm. movie came out. And the whole thing was like a joke and tie in from that angle. So, so I, it's I, like an I artifact
0: love... from
4: that world. Mm hmm. Gwen glanced down at Robin, whom, it transpired, was barefoot and awkwardly hopping across the terrain. Excuse me. I thought I was being rather nimble. It wasn't nimble. It was lurching like a drunken monkey. Where are your boots? Back in the hut. We left in rather a hurry. Ow. Ow. Oh,
0: that was sharp.
12: Ow. Why are they back at the hut?
0: I was sleeping. That's what people do at night. You were screaming. I came running. Excuse me, princess. Your feet are all wrong. You should have hooves. Even you wear shoes.
12: Who are you talking to? The nag.
0: He's narrating this bit.
12: I know. I was just trying to be professional and stay in character.
0: I just want a little generosity of description. I've been losing my impact as a hero in recent chapters. I was hoping to win a little bit back here.
4: Actually, the shoeless thing is pretty noteworthy. It's only been done really effectively twice, Die Hard and Children of Men. If you don't count shoeless Joe Jackson, and nobody does. Plus, it shows your vulnerability. Being a hero isn't always about being super tough, you know. You
12: do realize you're diminishing the threat level here, both of you? This isn't at all how we did things at Rada.
4: Come on, throw me a bone, you petulant glue factory. Fine. Robin was jumping with unparalleled cat-like nimbleness across the terrain.
12: (laughs) Oh, back on. You want to go back and get your boots?
0: No, too many of them back there. One uh, that I think maybe the bit that I like the most is actually the beginning, where it starts talking about uh, Buttercup being the, like, 15th most beautiful woman in the world, and just the various women that had to get knocked out of that race in order to, to get Buttercup all the way to the top. And it actually took Wesley apparently leaving and, uh, and dying for her to hit that a measure of pain which made her more beautiful, which is appropriate since Robin Wright has actually, I would estimate, gotten more beautiful as she's gone along, especially as she's played characters who have experienced more pain than Buttercup.
11: I mean, I think Robin Wright is significantly more attractive with a sword and a horse in mm. Wonder yes. Woman than she is yes. in this movie.
12: We had a discussion about that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but I mean, you were reading this to me, and that you started breaking down and sobbing just in the uh, the accounts of how yes. much Wesley and oh. Buttercup loved each it other. It
12: was pathetic. I couldn't stop crying.
0: <laughs> I had to give her the Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the
11: Heimlich maneuver.
0: Nice, yeah, uh, but. But yeah, no, it's 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 really it's it's kind of lovely, and I actually preferred having it read to me to reading it myself because reading it myself, my eyes started racing through to find the lines that I knew and glossing over the lines that uh, uh, were were different or were effectively filibustering before we got to the meat of it. Uh, one bit that I'm very glad wasn't in the film, you know, still sort of ended up in the in there at some point. Let's get this out of the way. Soonish, when Wesley, disguised as the man in black, the red pirate Roberts, recovers Princess Buttercup, Buttercup, who's not yet a princess, the uh, gerrymandering hadn't yet gone on, um, or had had it.
12: No, she was made a princess when she got engaged to Humperdinck.
0: Okay, so prior to the kidnapping. Okay, so he's uh, recovered the princess. He's still going under the alias of the Dread Pirate Roberts, and there is a rather too long, awkward sequence where Buttercup is without her blindfold. He is still wearing the mask, which he's absolutely right everyone will be wearing in in, uh, years to come. (laughs) (laughs) But he's treating her kind of like shit to sort of test her and at one point, he, say, you know, he, he, he says, the penalty for lying to me is, I'm going to slap you upside the face. And it's like, oh, that really doesn't work now. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether it worked back in 1987, but in the book, he straight up chokes her. He grabs her by the throat. And it's like, oh, I see. So uh, threats of being cuffed in the face from the 80s were, in fact, a throttling in the 70s. So Christ knows what it was like in the 50s. They'd just straight up
13: kill you.
12: I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the Dread Pirate Roberts. Admit it.
13: With pride? What can I do for you?
12: You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces.
13: Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why loose your venom on me?
12: You kill my love.
13: It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly, rich, and scabby?
12: No. A farm boy. Poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. On the high seas, your ship attacked. and The dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners.
13: I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time.
12: You mock my pain.
13: Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something.
0: But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's a bit of the film that I'm like... <laughs> Would Wesley even do that, or would he just sort of verbally tease her? And I feel like um, that that bit needed some updating.
8: There's such a fine line to walk with Wesley because even in the version that we have, and that's after Goldman has like, re, like, like you said, he went back and consciously like reworked where your empathy is supposed to be, mm. how far you can take certain things, um, and even then, the the borderline gaslighting that that Wesley is involved in is only really not not acceptable but it only narratively works a mm-hmm. because she pushes him down a hill mm-hmm. as as like comeuppance which you feel like yeah he kind of deserved that and b he spends the rest of the movie kind of getting the shit kicked out of him after that yeah so that he can be worthy of actually sweeping her off her feet
0: but she falls down the hill as well at the same time so she gets the same punishment as him and he gets horribly tortured and killed for rescuing her not for being shitty to her
8: and like in the book there's there's also some extra stuff where he like he basically calls her stupid and is like look i decided that i was going to like get super buff for you because i thought you might like a strong man mm. and i learned a whole bunch of stuff for you because i thought you might like a smart man but and and he just kind of like cut like you know insults her for a little bit and it's like, whoa, bro, mm, nah,
0: that's nah. negging. Um, also, at the end when he's um, haranguing with uh, Humperdink, he refers to her as baggage, which he'll take off Humperdink's hands. And it's like, whoa, that that wasn't necessary. And thank you for taking it out of the screenplay because uh, it just it's better off not being there. Uh, it's, I suppose, it would have been a bit more acceptable if. Post this scenario, he'd just apologized and apologized to her, and just and, and that Buttercup had been angry at him for messing with her head. Instead, she's just over the moon that he's still alive. It's like, um, remember in Angley's Hulk, we were like, there's that bit where he strangles Betty, mm-hmm. and then afterwards, she's like, oh, and she sort of like gently strokes him, like a mother would stroke a child. And it's like, no, 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 you need to tell him that strangling was not on, Bruce.
11: I think the main reason for that shift in the book and the the movie is just that the focus of the book is a little bit more for lack of a better word kind of mean. It is a lot more satirical. You're not really supposed to like the characters as much and I mean it is a little bit more shrek It's a little bit more like making fun of all of this. Like It pretty p- intensely depicts Buttercup as kind of useless besides being pretty and Wesley is kind of a jerk and nothing is like as lovable and warm as in the movie, and it seems like it was a very conscious decision to change what the tone and the intent was between Mm. the book and the screenplay, despite a lot of it being the same.
8: The actors also do so much heavy lifting. Carrie Elwes is just inherently likable as a performer, Mm. and they, and getting, even Chris Sarandon is enjoyable to watch being an utter dick. So so many of the reasons this movie works is because there's there's so much likability in the cast. There's just like immediate connection to even the characters who you're not supposed to like, like Fezzik and Inigo, the rhyming contest on the boat, especially in the way that um Patinkin and and Andre the Giant play off of each other. That that works in a way that you can't replicate on the page because you can't have that kind of immediate actor chemistry happen. And it does in the movie, and so that does a lot of the a lot of the legwork to making you like these characters as people, as opposed to you know like the Shrek version of these characters, like you were saying.
0: I would go so far as to say that uh, Mandy Patinkin as um, Inigo and Andre the Giant as Fezic are the two secret weapons of this film. If they were just thuggish thugs who were like just some dudes out of. Uh, the trans the second Transformers movie or uh, the D and D movie with uh, Thor cool. Birch in it. Um, if they'd just been these like kind of lackeys, uh, yeah, okay. This this film probably would still have many charms to it, but having them both be have this sweet rela- like friendship between each other and this this gentle male affection is absolutely. Adorable to actually uh, watch in the film. And obviously, Andre the Giant died in 1993, so any time watching this afterwards it was going to make this feel melancholy and
3: more bittersweet.
6: That Vicini, he can fuss.
3: Fuss, fuss. Thing you like to scream at us?
6: Probably he means no
3: harm. No. He's very, very short on. Tom,
6: you have a great gift for rhyme.
3: Yes, yes, some of it. Enough
6: of that! Percy, are there rocks ahead?
0: If they are, we all be dead.
3: No more rhymes now. I mean it. Anybody want a feel Yeah!
0: And uh, Mandy Patinkin. Is such a wonderful chap. When you watch him in interviews, he's so kind of misty eyed about the whole thing. And he really commits to an ego. And it's the. Hello, hello. my hello. name my is name Inigo, Inigo Montoya.
11: Montoya.
10: You, you killed kill my father. father. Prepare,
4: prepare, prepare to die. To die. die.
10: <laughs> it's that. It's that just to get it all out of our system, it's right? Because <laughs> we're all going to say it in some way. <laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: It, it's a simple one two punch of setup, where he tells you who he is, repeats that mantra, and you can you get the whole gist of Inigo. And then payoff where he repeats the mantra over and over until you find it's become your mantra and you're willing him to complete this arc. But it's the, that level of commitment there. And, and when Elwes and Petenkin have that fencing match, um, uh, supervised by Bob Anderson, the, the sword master of that particular era, uh, it is... I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, at least for 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 1987, those two were the best stage fighters in existence for just that moment. Outside of maybe Asia, with uh, some you know some really fantastic martial artists, we're talking with a rapier here. That cannot be bested up until maybe some stuff like The Mask of Zorro, presided over by Bob Anderson. <laughs> uh, but it, I think it's
12: I see a pattern here.
0: It's building in the book as the second. Greatest sword fight ever Uh, but the first greatest is is coming up which is a great claim to make the first greatest is basically just Count Rugen running for his life and trying to deflect in ego and not really fighting all that well or or particularly it's emotionally charged and that sense of this has to reach its conclusion and I really want it to be a positive conclusion that makes it a really emotionally charged moment but the actual on a technical level and just in terms of how delightful it is to watch them these two men are unmatched as just for that one on-screen coupling of crossed swords.
8: Especially because they, and they deliberately made this choice, they shot it so the only time they're using stuntmen is when they're doing stuff like the, the flips and tumbles and things like that. Yeah. They Even with Elwes wearing the mask, they have enough of a distance so you can see that it's still his eyes, his lips. It's obviously Patinkin these these guys rehearsed the hell out of this and the two things that that rob reiner and bob anderson do that make this a for the time a perfect sword fight of its kind is that a they're they're telling a a three-act story within the fight itself mm-hmm. you have the oh now we're getting the feel for each other oh now one of our people is on the back foot oh now neither of them are left-handed and this is when wesley wins they also don't try to replicate that kind of physical gauntlet later on. Like you were, sa- like you were saying, Alex, the the Count Rugen sword fight is far more emotionally charged, mm. but it's also way shorter. It's way less complicated. And so you don't feel like you're retreading anything. And that makes the, the duel on top of the Cliffs' of Insanity feel like this this singular thing. Mm. And it's also sort of the mission statement of the movie in that, these guys are, for one They decided to sit down And have a chat before they had the sword fight Which you you don't necessarily Do in, in movies Imagine
0: like, if Darth Maul had done that with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan Let's just sit down and exchange <laughs> Like this is what I have, what my deal is Regarding the Sith, better movie
8: Exactly, or, or even Just like, yeah, man, what what have you been up to Well look, we went to this desert planet And you were there, but then I had to Like, there was this giant fish, what was with that And And there's <laughs> It humanizes both of them, so you want you kind of want both of them to win. Yeah, but then it also while it's doing a slightly humorous take on it, it's still doing a very high drama version of what it's doing. Like it, it commits to the drama to the point where, like, when Ine goes like, "Well, I guess I'm going to die now," and Wesley spares his life, you're like, "Hey, that's kind of a victory for both characters because." one of them is not stained with you know the the blood of bloodthirsty vengeance and the other one still gets to live maybe we can see these two super cool dudes work together later in the movie yeah and, and then that happens
0: and the fact that it is they're so respectful of each other and enjoying having the fight that makes it just so much more gleeful to uh to to watch And uh, the fact that they both live through it makes it even more satisfying, whereas the end fight with Count Rugen is effectively just an agreed-upon double murder, which doesn't quite reach its final conclusion since Inigo's still walking at the end. Mm. And I suppose to begin with, it takes a long while to get Rugen to agree to be part of this double murder, what with all the running away.
11: The chemistry between Wesley and Anigo is really what makes the Clips of Insanity fight Bingo. just that much better. It's just that the way they talk to each other, you just kind of want them to stop and like go have a beer together and like talk about sword fighting techniques for a few hours. And, like I don't know, start a show together. I don't know what their <laughs> plans are, but I, I like them together a lot.
7: The back and forth about what techniques they're using is such a good moment. It's such a great touch because even if you don't understand what they're talking about, you still get the sense that they are reveling in one another's skill and kind of getting closer to one another as, like, friends in this shared appreciation of this art form. Mm. It's just such a great touch for the characters, and it makes that fight so enjoyable to watch. And if you...
12: Um- and that brings a little bit of the flavour of Inigo's character from the book in as well, where he's he's got so good at doing what he does that he's becoming bored. He doesn't cross paths with anybody who can really challenge him anymore. And to meet somebody who can really challenge him is he he takes a certain joy in that that Mandy Patinkin really manages to get across in in the way he delivers his lines in this section.
0: And if you track down Olympic quality fencing, it's two guys or, or women standing not far from each other along a slip and slide and they aren't allowed to move off the slip and slide and they've got three moves that they can perform, ching, ching, ching. And it's, the whole point is to be able to score a hit. It's not about all of this movement and all of this talking and all of this like emotionally charged kind of... We're seeing their personalities come out. The uh, personalities in genuine professional quality fencing are hidden behind armour. There's no... Um, Connect, like, communication between the two of them. Unless maybe you get, uh, like, two long arch rivals, and I would like to see that fight play we out. Sport, but it's sport, not drama. Yeah, it's not the same thing as a, a, a staged fight. Yeah. Also fun to mention Zorro, since I'd go ahead and wager that Antonio Banderas' Zorro is basing itself on Mandy Patinkin's performance as Inigo here, which then means that Puss in Boots... Comes from that as well. So, you know, Shrek, the lame version of a Princess Bride, purloined that element for itself.
10: Alex, or, does everything have to come back to Shrek? Just yes. Every time? Okay. This well, was okay. the
0: Shrek Age, Victoria. <laughs> we must uh, observe it.
8: You uh, <laughs> must navigate the Shrek Age of the Shrek Age.
9: <laughs> oh
0: That's what I'm talking
8: about. Shirley Bansy. I do not mean to pry, but you don't by
6: any chance happen to have six fingers on your right hand.
13: Do you always begin conversations this way?
6: My father was slaughtered by a six-fingered man. Was a great sword maker, my father. When the six-fingered man appear and requests a special sword, my father took the job. He slept a year before he was done.
13: I've never seen a equal.
6: Six-fingered man returned and demanded it. But at one-tenth his promised price, my father refused. Without a word, the six-fingered man slashed him through the heart. I love my father. So naturally, I challenged his murderer to a duel. I failed. Six-fingered man lived my life but he gave me this.
13: How old were you?
6: I was 11 years old. When I was strong enough, I dedicated my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say, hello, my name is Genigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You've done nothing but study swordplay. More pursuit than a study like you. see, I cannot find him. It. It's been 20 years now. I starting to lose confidence. I just work for Ficina to pay the bills. It's not a lot of money in revenge.
13: Well, I. I certainly hope you find him someday. You're ready then? Whether I am or not, you've been more than fair. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die.
10: The sword fight scene at the tops of the cliffs in of insanity is one of my favorite scenes in any movie I've ever seen. Even from a young age, because I've seen this movie probably a million times. <laughs> and Inigo Montoya is my Inigo Montoya is my favorite character in this film. Meaning that he's probably one of my favorite characters in all of cinema. <laughs> I love. Uh, just the heart that is brought to that character. And it is so thoroughly displayed in that scene. And looking up a lot of production stuff for the movie, as I have for many years, they trained so hard for that scene that both of those actors in any movies that they did after that, that involved sword fighting, there was always a note in that movie's production of, wow, they did... That was really easy for them. They mm. have a lot of training <laughs> in sword fighting. And they always... Attributed it back to specifically this scene in uh, the Princess Bride. They they originally created that set twice—one uh, the way that you see it, and one reversed, so that they didn't have to actually fight left-handed. They just reversed the footage. Oh no! Nice. But then, wow. but then the two of them ended up training so hard <laughs> with an actual fencer, and the other half of their training, because when they weren't on screen, they were training for that scene for for a lot of it apparently. In addition to actually training with a fencer, they also trained uh, by watching old, like Errol Flynn movies, and being like, "Okay, well, how can we make this scene but better?" Yeah, and then they trained. Energy. And then they trained so hard that they learned each other's movements in the kind of intended choreography. Uh, So that they would know exactly like when the other person, if they stepped, if they misstepped or something, they knew the mistake was there because they knew that side of it as well. And uh, originally, I read that the one of the first takes of the scene, it went too fast because they were too good at it. (laughs) So they actually had to add more flourishes and more like side comments and more more side scenes to extend the scene out to the the full length it was supposed to be because they were so proficient with the swords with each other specifically and i just i love that that's not something sure there have been plenty of sword fights in movies that probably look more impressive but they're this one is not cg in any way it is just two men With six months or more of training, doing extremely well at performing this sword fight Mm. uh, in a way that, like, you just don't see anymore. And it will still, in my mind, be one of the greatest sword fights in cinema, like, period. Just from, like, uh, the whole way around, from the production, from the training, from the just everything about it is my favorite thing.
0: I'm just trying to think of a, a, f- a film which recently had any kind of rapier fighting. The last one I can recall was Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Curse of the Black Pearl. Obviously, they've they've had a lot of saber fights, but the uh, original fight between Jack and Will uh, in the uh, blacksmith shop is has a kind of flavor of this.
10: A little bit, but they play almost too much on the kind of terrain, and it's almost like a little too tight in its choreography Mm. to make it feel less natural because even in even though i know that a decent amount of the fighting in the princess bride is choreographed obviously this first fight so much of it is like the ad-libbing of billy crystal later on like it's that but with swords Mm. and i love it so much
0: so like monkey island is uh your, your greatest weapon is your wit in a way <laughs> uh brendan go i
8: i think the closest that you get recently to this is maybe the the duel between zombie mark strong and and charlie cox in stardust mm-hmm. in terms of having to to you know communicate body uh bodily action and and uh physical acting alongside complicated choreography um like this this from the princess bride and the mask of zorro like you don't get things like this anymore at all outside of like uh like you were saying um hong kong or, or asian cinema where they they basically do what the actors for the princess bride did for everything like um like you're saying like they they trained so hard for this like it, it was basically their second job alongside and and that's that's kind of what you have to do to get this good. And no one these days with modern, you know, movie making scheduling has that kind of time.
0: Ah, closest now that you mention Hong Kong cinema that I can think of in a recent movie when Master Z fought Michelle Yeoh with those machetes.
8: Oh yeah. I mean there's there's definitely examples in in things like the, you know, the the Eat Mans or or, you know, stuff like that. But yeah. but modern Hollywood just doesn't I mean they just don't have the the resources in some cases, literally, because Bob Anderson sadly isn't with us anymore, to yeah.
0: to do it this way. It's almost like when he left, he was he took sword fighting with him.
11: Yeah, <laughs> we've moved on to gung, uh gun kata or gun mm. fu with the. Uh, um, oh my god, it's John escaping Wick? me. Yep, yeah, John Wick. Mm-hmm. A lot of movies. knives as well. I, yeah, the, there's some comp- comparison to be made there, but those are a lot darker and harsher mm. uh, kind of fight sequences. There's less joy to be had there yeah,
8: sure, even with the new mean. star wars no, is different. kind of like shortened mm-hmm.
0: yeah and that's you that you know throughout those uh, um th- uh, three films in the in the newer ones uh, the only sword fight that was not ray and kylo wailing on each other with baseball bats was uh, uh when ray angrily beat down on luke who was defending himself with a tv aerial
11: I'll make an argument for the throne room scene in The Last Jedi as one of the best modern sword fight sequences, actually, with Kylo and Rey fighting off all of the guards together. That was... Very true. That's a masterpiece. That's
0: wonderful.
8: Yeah, and I think it's, like, half as long as this. Like, it's... Modern sword fights are a lot shorter than this is. Mm.
0: Uh, Speaking of fighting, uh, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time here, Under the Giant, Uh, this is a rare instance of someone playing a character who was written for him years ago the character of Fezzik in the book was based on Andre the Giant whom uh, Goldman went to see uh, wrestle at Madison Square Garden so the idea that 14 years later he would basically get to play this it goes beyond even Samuel L. Jackson taking the role of uh, Nick Fury who obviously originally wasn't written for him uh, but was adapted to fit Samuel L. Jackson and then later was uh, was played by Samuel L. Jackson but that's really one of the only instances I can uh, think of off the top of my head that just feel like a writer had this character this actor in mind when they were doing the character and then they eventually embodied it there was something very somber and yet delightful and fun about andre's demeanor behind the camera he had kind of a almost like, I will trust you, boss in charge, to steer me in the right direction. If you hear people talk about him, he sounded like he didn't suffer fools gladly, but he was also incredibly gentle and caring, and he liked to drink, and he liked to pay for things in restaurants. But one of the things that just got to me, and I don't remember if it was um, Rob Reiner who said this, or Mandy Patinkin, of Andre, that they asked him how he felt when he was on the set. And he said, it's great. No one looks at me, which just broke my heart.
11: He had a too short and too difficult existence for what a kind person it seems like he genuinely was. Yeah,
8: And he's really one of the examples of this film happening upon the perfect people, sometimes in spite of previous plans because while Goldman had written this for basically for Andre the Giant, I believe at some point the studio was wanting Arnold Schwarzenegger to you know, like they were pushing that on Rob Reiner saying, like, hey, we need to get Schwarzenegger and 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 it sounded like a good idea and it was something that they were considering, but I, I don't know, I guess Predator happened and so they weren't able to do that. And they were able to just go go ahead and like get on but there's there is a an alternate reality where we have a fezic who is played by an actor who's got charisma but it's a very different balance like you said there's there's a kindness and a gentleness gentleness to honor the giant that is so at odds with his stature that it's you can't think of the character any other way because that's such a perfect balance
3: i did that on purpose i don't have to miss i believe you so what happens now we face each other as God intended, sportsman life, No tricks, no weapons, skill again, skill along. You mean, you'll
13: put down your rock and I'll put down my sword and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people? I can kill you now. Frankly, I think the odds are slightly in your
3: favor at hand fighting. So my fault being the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. Are you just fiddling around with me, or what? I just want you to feel you're doing well. I hate for people to die in the hands. You're quick. A good thing, too. Why are you wearing a mask? Were you burn the acid or something like that?
13: Oh, no, it's just they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future.
3: Hey, I just feared it when you give me so much trouble. Why is that? Do you think? Well, I haven't fought just one person for so long. Ugh. Been specializing in groups, battling gangs for local charities, that kind of thing. Ooh. Why should that make such a difference? When you see, you use different moves when you're fighting. After a dozen people. Then we only. I have to be one, I'm at
13: one. I do not envy you the headache you will have when you awake. But in the meantime, rest well, and dream of large women.
0: And again, the uh, the accord he has with uh, Patenkin as an ego, um, the little rhyming game they get into, that means that as you're, if you're a kid watching this, I never saw this as a, a little kid. I actually think I caught the end of it from around about the time that Wesley is effectively immobile and they were storming the castle. So I thought, I think maybe 10, 12 minutes of it, I uh, saw it on TV and I was like, well, this was good. I, I kind of wish I'd seen it from the beginning. Uh, but back in those days, heroes didn't have moustaches Uh, There was um, the dude from Krull, and I think that's about it. So I was like, well, this is unusual. He has this little pencil moustache. And I, I felt like I needed to know about this character, this actor. But if I had, from a very young age, watched the whole thing all the way through, I think I would have warmed to Fezzik and Inigo early on, because anyone can warm to the idea of two friends being shouted at by a shitty little middle manager.
11: Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the right age to start showing someone the princess bride just like pre-utero or do you have to
10: start a little
0: later than well somebody that? asked uh, my my daughter is seven should i show it to her or will, will she not get it and uh, i said just show it to her now and then when she's older and can come back to it she can get more about it you don't have to wait until a child is of the perfect age in fact if anything if they're familiar with it they'll pay more attention uh, because if you wait until a child is very canny, they might not. They might have that Fred Savage in this sense of, I'm going to reject anything that doesn't fit within my fairly narrow comfort zone.
8: It's the Roger Rabbit principle of if you show a movie to a child, certain films will work if they're four. Like, I, I saw The Princess Bride at a very young age, and it was like, Hey, there's monsters and sword fights. This is rad. And then you get to do the thing where you go back and you rediscover, wait a minute, there's basically a second movie going on here that I can get and appreciate yeah. as an older viewer, but with a familiarity. And that's, a, that, that's something that I would highly recommend basically anyone do is, is, you know, stuff like this, definitely show it a little bit early and then come back to it later so that the, so that your kid can basically rediscover, like, wait, not only does this hold up there's all this other stuff that I didn't get Like, Why did you show this to me?
7: <laughs>
8: <laughs> what, was I allowed to watch this?
7: <laughs> when you watch the special features on The Princess Bride, that's something that a lot of the cast and crew talk about is how they have people come up to them who were shown the movie as kids and then rediscovered it in college and are now showing their own kids. It has that sort of timeless quality where no matter what stage of life you're in... When you pick up this movie, you get something out of it and you get more out of it as you grow.
11: The first time I actually saw this movie was at a friend's wedding on an actual film-like canister in a theatre. So it was a fantastic first time to see this film. I was very blessed.
0: And Vizzini, the little shitty middle manager that I mentioned before. um, Actually, just to finish off on uh, uh, Fezzik, uh, aside from his warm wit and just the bit where he picks up um, Inigo after he's drunk – and just, uh, uh, he said, I am waiting for Vezini." And Andre picks him up and says, you surely are a meanie. And then he <laughs> measures his human-sized hand against this giant dinner plate hand that uh, Andre has. And then looks up at him with such joy that they're, uh, they're both, they didn't know that they were both alive. And there's this sort of wonderful soft reunion there, which again, I feel like that is the secret power of this movie. The, they're, they're They're sort of... Buddy friendship, and like you know, you can take on board all the romance because you've also got this as well. Um, it's the the broad grin that Andre gives him in that kind of you know ah my friend uh, kind of way. I love that. But Andre had a terrible back injury at this point, and and he wasn't able to really do much in the way of uh, fighting. So when uh, Carrie Elwes is hanging off his back, performing a sleeper hold on him. Uh, he had um, they'd rigged up various ramps that Carrie could unseen by the camera walk along so that it wasn't putting strain on uh, Andre's uh, back and then at the end when Buttercup jumps down to uh, be caught by him he was effectively leaning back on an unseen slope so that when she fell into his arms he wouldn't Have His back wouldn't have to be braced because it was already resting on something. I think they had her
12: on a cable as well so that there wouldn't be too much weight coming onto him.
0: So it's it's this wonderful kind of bittersweet, sad revelation that this tower of strength actually had so much fragility going on. And that makes him more endearing to me.
8: It also makes his physical exertion seem slightly more matter of fact because he's not he's not doing the sort of wrestling that he would have done 10 years ago Mm. but what he is doing seems just kind of like a little bit you know small here and there but it's still just like this massive stuff because everyone is reacting to it around him that he feels like he's doing so much more but again it's like that kind of you know that hint of banality of like yeah this is just a Tuesday for me I don't even work out <laughs> whatever
0: I <laughs> don't even exercise um, one of my favorite wrestling stories about him I might have said on the Wrestlemania 30 show was uh I think down to Ultimate Warrior being a dick around him and he as I said he didn't really suffer fools gladly and he kind of let people know when he wasn't particularly happy. So, like, the warrior was, uh, like, running back and forth across the ring as he is prone to do. And at one point, I think after he'd been unprofessional, Andre simply held out his fist and allowed warrior to run hard into it. (laughs) 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 But Vizzini, uh, played by Wallace Shawn, someone who I'm sure must not be able to walk the street without someone leaping out and going inconceivable at him (laughs) oh I I hadn't heard that one before like like we said before he is more pompous than he is intelligent but he like his character thrives on being this little rat who's constantly boasting and and that you just you want to see him get his comeuppance which is extremely satisfying when it does come Um, Vizzini
12: One thing I really, really love about Vizzini, and this is more obvious in the book than it is in the film, but I think Wallace Shawn puts it across quite successfully. Um, And and just to to mention, by the way, this film absolutely lives by its casting. Um, I think it was... I can't remember if it was Reiner or Goldman who said this in the uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff, but the, the casting, they really took care to get the right people for the right roles, and it shows. There's not... A single I, I mean I think we've already said there's not a single wasted character and every role is performed so brilliantly that it, it puts all of that dialogue across in a way that that you just can't imagine or I can't anyway any of these roles being played by anybody else um, but um, but yeah Vizzini's thing is that he will twist the facts the evidence he will turn reality inside out and knot it in two in order not to be wrong
8: so he's a man
0: <laughs> the thing about like it, when he's pointing to the uh, the ship that's following them and he's like he's just out for a, a, a sail through eel infested waters at night <laughs> yeah <laughs> He's twisting uh, uh, facts to suit theories rather than theories to suit facts.
11: Yes, indeed. One of the best things about Vizini as a character is that you get just enough of him that he is set up as an annoying mean boss and you get to see him continually try to put these blockades in front of Wesley and then he just dies like a third of the way through the movie because he could... He's very funny, But as a primary antagonist throughout the rest of the movie, he probably would have gotten exhausting. But you get just enough Vizzini that you love the character and nothing
12: more.
0: Yeah, I agree.
12: And it's such a hilarious death as well. He's he's himself right up until the last minute, and then he just kills over.
8: (laughs) Yeah, Vizzini is what happens when you know when you're supposed to take a little finger off the board.
13: (laughs) (laughs) Nice.
0: Thank you. Yeah.
13: What if there can be no arrangement? then we are at an impasse. I'm afraid so. I
2: can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. You're that smart? Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates?
13: Yes. Morons. Really? In that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. For the princess? To the death? I accept. Good. Then pour the wine inhale this but do not touch I smell nothing what you do not smell is called Iocane powder it is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid and is among the more deadly poisons known to man where is the poison? the battle of wits has begun it ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead but it's so simple
2: All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet... ...because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? (laughs) Not remotely because iokane comes from australia as everyone knows and australia is entirely peopled with criminals and criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me so i can clearly not choose
13: the wine in front of you truly you have a dizzying intellect
2: wait till i get going where was i australia yes australia and you must have suspected i would have known the powder's origin so i can clearly not choose the wine in front of me
13: you're just stalling now
2: you'd like to think that wouldn't you You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me.
13: You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work
2: it has worked you've given everything away I know where the poison is then make your choice I will and I choose what in the world can that be what where
13: I don't see anything
2: oh well, I, I could have sworn I saw something I, no matter
13: <laughs> what's so funny
2: I'll, I'll tell you in a minute first let's drink me from my glass and you from yours <laughs> Guessed wrong. You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha! You fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this: never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs>
12: to think. All that time it was shortcut that was
13: poisoned. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iokane powder.
0: okay, so uh Prince Humperdinck, the dastardly villain, and uh, Count Rugen as his uh, uh, second in command. Uh, as you said, there's this um the, the 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 banter back and forth between them. It makes them seem boring but at the same time kind of human. And like th- th- again, this feels like these are where um, the dastardly, nefarious, scheming characters in Game of Thrones come from, uh, and a lot of them are similarly fun in in that regard. Uh, but I, th- I feel like Chris Sarandon's um, it's a really tough and thankless role to have to juggle. Because if you're too evil, you scare the kids. And if you're too silly, you aren't threatening enough. It's like Biff in Back to the Future.
12: Mm. I think part of how they got the balance with Humperdink in particular was that Chris Sarandon actually makes him really scary. And they, I think they refer to him as Fright Night's Chris Sarandon. Mm-hmm. So he brings a lot of his Fright Night uh, character impact to bear even if Humperdinck isn't quite as as gleefully um toothy shall we say um he he still has that kind of of overly threatening tone he never smiles he's got this very uh, it's it's not quite stern it's just mean he's got this very sort of mean attitude and then they put him in all of this wonderfully shiny Renfair outfit mm.
0: All of this velour, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like,
12: particularly the one at the end that matches Buttercup's wedding dress. Mm-hmm. It's like that is just mm, okay. <laughs> it takes a lot of the sting out of him.
0: I love how when he smells the goblet, he goes, "Iocane okay powder." I'd stake my life on it, which we've already been told it's odorless. Mm. So, I mean, like, it's not. It's it's funny, but then you think, oh, actually, that that does kind of... Like, he's dead, and there seems to be no reason for it. So, iocane okay powder. Which, it's a, it's a nice little touch.
10: And and he's he's depicted as being this great hunter. Like, he's doing the tracking, which is something that you don't see from a lot of villains in, like, a similar kind of story, where they would have, you know, their assassin or whatever doing the tracking. But, no, mm. he's out there because the thing... And I believe it was even in the book. The thing he loves more than anything is hunting animals. He doesn't really care about being a prince. And he doesn't care about Buttercup. Uh, and And they really... I was surprised how much of that was in the movie like on a rewatch because I didn't remember it. Mm. Uh, but another thing that I was really excited expecting... You didn't remember
0: from for the million times you'd seen it before?
10: Humperdinck's not really the character I care about, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that I was surprised because I remembered there being more queer coding between Humperdinck and uh, Rugen. Mm. And there's really only the one scene whenever they're in the forest where they're having that kind of like light conversation that, He's like, you know, I've got my – I've got a wedding to perform, my fiancé to murder, and Gilder take frame for it. I'm swamped. Like, just the whole, like (laughs) – like, um, the way that both of them deliver their lines in that scene make them feel – it's the only scene where they feel like friends. But I was thinking about how if we made this film today, there would absolutely be queer coding between the two of them, right? Mm. Because Prince Humperdinck, somebody whose entire plan – is to murder the you know most beautiful woman in the world, whatever. Well, the, just
0: having her as is, a wife.
10: Yeah, well, having her, but but having her specifically to fulfill his own ends, rather than having any kind of affection towards her, and having this really dedicated lackey. I mean, it's basically the villains from uh, Birds of Prey, right?
5: Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of why that that gets picked up on. In a stronger sense, even than maybe it's portrayed in the film and, and feels like a bigger part is because they have the two villain dynamic and they balance them so well that they feel like two halves of a whole they do this also in the mask of Zoro where you have the double villain of one of them's slightly more established and one of them's slightly more outside the lines because Get you know he's life. either putting. Heads in jars, or he's got a dungeon full of creepy pain toys. Oh, he puts and heads in you... jars
0: and then drinks the water. My god, oh. man!
8: <laughs> and and then you also have their their different like the ways they get when violence, uh, like when when their when their ire is aroused. I feel when like we Z-
0: Mask of Zorro show at some point. <laughs> I mean, you're dropping not hints there. So. <laughs> um, you but,
5: really but see but that is, movie? Oh, you've oh, never seen
0: it.
8: If it's, you like this, you're going to love it.
0: Yeah, it's it's got a I similar do- flavor. Obviously less um, meta-narrative, but there is a great sense of humour to it and a spark.
8: Um, but specifically in terms of how Humperdink and Rugen react when their dander is up, you have Humperdink getting very explosive and shouty, and he'll... I really would not say that
4: him. if I were you!
8: And then you have Rugen who gets just, like, ice cold, and he's, like, stabbed in go, and he's just like, hmm, I'm, I'm disappointed that you're going to die so easily. They, I they think go to that's such...
0: quite the worst thing I've ever heard.
8: Oh, it's so delicious! I'm marvelous! <laughs> and Christopher they Guest balance is each other out.
0: Christopher Guest is chameleonic. If you've seen him in any other film, he's different every time. Like he's like he's Nigel Tufnell in uh, the same director uh, uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, so he's like now no, uh, who's in here? No one. And over here, <laughs> you got a little guy, and like everyone just keeps on folding. And like it just, the performance there is so different to uh, Rugen. And then if you go to, forward to Best in Show, he's like, the bloodhound has the <laughs> best nose of any dog. And, and then and then you go to Corky in Waiting for Guffman, and then you go to the, the guy from, um, the, wow, $50 worth of roses in uh, Little Trip of Horrors. He just disappears into the role of each character to the point where Rob Reiner went out to dinner with the cast and then was like, oh, Christopher Guest here. Oh, shit, you were Count Rogan. He had just basically <laughs> forgotten who this guy was because in real life he's different to the characters he acts as. This is where the term character actor comes from and it is insulting to everyone who's ever just played a character uh, and is, you know, a, a, a superstar but's also really good at acting. Or it is also kind of insulting to anyone who's called a character actor because they're not gorgeous, but uh, he's extremely talented on a Margot Martindale level.
11: Nathan literally said when the movie ended and the credits came up, Oh, it's the Christopher Guest from Spinal Tap. I <laughs> completely forgot that. Which I was just like, yeah, but I get you. He is very different in every role he's in. As far as the queer coding is concerned with the villains, I think you could say it's on balance basically with the queer coding of inigo and physic they're all mm. very close male relationships so i think it kind of balances itself out no i want to the be
10: most part. clear i want to be clear here i'm saying that there really isn't any queer coding oh, exactly that i was surprised I that there was so little also now that you mention it only one person in
0: this whole film finds Buttercup attractive, and she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Like Fezzik's like, hello, lady, but he's not like, and Inigo's an not besotted with her either. And seemingly neither Rugen nor Humperdinck or anyone seems particularly interested in um, Buttercup. It's only Wesley, and he is interested enough for all of us. There's he one is more besotted. Person. In the words of Mark Knopfler, he became obsessed.
11: Maybe not the best lyric? <laughs> There, there is one person you're missing, uh, the king. The king, uh, oh, yes, he me. <laughs> <laughs> the
10: And for the record, I mean both Wesley and Buttercup. Big reasons why I'm by.
8: Mm-hmm. Just saying.
6: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, that's
8: understandable. Man. You want to talk about people who we we should have had them have a longer career doing this sort of thing? Like Carrie Elwes mm. should have been a swashbuckling hero for at least a decade after this.
0: Yeah.
11: The '90s just wasn't very swashbuckling, unfortunately.
0: True. They tried to make uh, one swashbuckling film, Cutthroat Island, and then it was decreed by Hollywood because that killed a studio uh, that there was to be no buckles swashed ever again.
10: Mm. And uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights didn't really help.
12: I was just mm. going to say that would have put the mockers on it a little bit, but I think it it is a little bit frustrating with uh, Cary Elwes. I feel like he missed a lot of boats because. Um, Because he's British I I mean like The one that always annoys me And it's only a little bit Because I really 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 do like Keanu Reeves But Dracula Mm. Jonathan Harker And you've got Kerryon was right there (laughs) And yet I know where the bastard sleeps Really? Surely he would have been more appropriate For the text.
0: For me I think we established this while we were making the film Well making the uh, analysis of the, uh, the film Keanu Reeves helps dracula to become so operatically well, good bad
12: there is that <laughs>
11: <laughs> but still <laughs> at least at least we'll always have the cat returns and carrie always voicing True. a magical cat swashbuckler yeah. he yes. also plays
0: the uh yes. the boyfriend in uh liar liar the uh, the potential new father for max
13: hey gipper i have something for you young man Ooh, watch yourself, it's the claw! (laughs) Ha-ha! Ooh, the claw's coming at you! Ooh, you're scared of the claw! You're scared of the claw!
9: Ooh! Jerry! Jerry! Huh? It's okay, you don't have to...
0: There's a sizable loss in this film. When uh, Wesley apparently dies the first time around, it's a a shock, because you're presented with this farm boy who's very, very patient and has this mimetic, as you wish... Uh, response to every um, uh, demand from uh, uh, Buttercup. Um, so, like, there's a certain purity about him, which means that when he turns up as the man in black... yes. That's,
12: well, no, I was just going to say, that's another massive credit to his acting prowess yeah. that I genuinely thought, oh, they filmed that bit at the beginning and then came back five years later to do the rest. <laughs> because he's he's kind of, as the farm boy, he's so... Uh, fresh and innocent, and kind of soft round the edges looking, and he's he really sharpens up and becomes much more uh, kind of rapier mm. wit and rapier sword um, once he's the man in black.
0: Yeah, but then the book and the film kill Wesley, uh, as in, uh, and, and and this bit in the commentary really stuck with me. Uh, Goldman said that uh, as soon as he had written the page. Uh, you know, Wesley lay dead on the machine, he just burst into tears, which was uncharacteristic for him as an author. And there have been a couple of characters in New Century that I have elected to kill ahead of time, and then finally gotten around to it, and just burst into tears as I'm doing it. I'm just, I'm feeling like I am feeling so cruel at this point. Certain uh, examples I'm thinking all the way up to the point where that where the book is released or the episode is released you can still go back on this you can still change it so that this character doesn't die you have the power of life or death here so every single death has to be really valid it can't just be for shock value but that the idea of loving a character of yours so much that you feel like a part of you is going when they're killed even if he had intentions to bring Wesley back it just feels like a stroke of pure cruelty for a writer.
6: Physic, Physic, listen. Do you hear? That is the sound of ultimate suffering. My heart made that sound when Ruger slaughtered my father. The man in black makes it
8: now. It's intentionally excising a a point of view that you've been exploring. And when you're doing so with as much empathy as Goldman is capable of displaying that's that's a big choice that you really have to that well not not just commit to but that you really have to anchor in the drama and and this does so very well even though it then brings him back but only mostly i
11: think part of it's also you can't really call yourself a satirist of a of a fairy tale if you don't deal with the biggest trope of all which is killing and then reviving your main character for no particular reason
8: and the way that they make it be, you know, we're, we're so many of it like this isn't like the Sleeping Beauty or the Snow White, like so many things would do the the we have to bring so and so back to back to life with magic or a kiss or something. And it would be the female character, whereas this one is the, you know, especially considering when this was written and when the movie came out. That's a big choice that you didn't see at the time, really,
7: mm-hmm.
8: especially after he proves his physical capabilities so soundly throughout the first like half of the like this is basically the second act all was lost moment structurally speaking so you have two-thirds of the movie almost where where wesley is gone but then back and he's a superhero oh wait and this is a testament
7: to how well this script works is that when he comes back it's not because of anything that buttercup does or anything that he did It's because there is another character, Inigo, whose motivation requires him to have this character's help. Mm. And so it is him that goes out of his way to bring Wesley back.
0: And he does that by way of the Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal, and uh, his wife, played by Carol Kane. And if you read that bit in the book, it's, it's a fun scene. But this... Performance unlocks the character it's somewhat based on the 2000 year old man sketch by Mel Brooks uh, but uh, Billy Crystal effectively based all of his mannerisms on p- people he knew relations rabbis he's got a very kind of Jewish sensibility and these little Idioms, these little phrases and things, and just things he mutters to himself, like "Oh, I'm gonna lick Valenish and Schrigen" when he's being chased around by his wife. Just little things that feel bizarrely authentic, and for some reason, he's ageless because Billy Crystal was a, a young man when they slathered him with that in that makeup. But it feels like Billy Crystal now, that like rewatching it, it's uh, it's it's quite extraordinary. This whole sequence it's like if you wrote it down on paper it's not hilarious but seeing the delivery of that this is a noble cause sir his wife is crippled his children are starving now are you a rotten liar just the whole like the irreverence of the whole scenario when they they are tap dancing On Wesley's grave at this point. And it's so reassuring to kids watching, so that, like, even though the worst thing has happened, it's like we can claw our way back from this.
11: And I don't know why, but the thing that I usually find funniest when watching this scene is that his
12: wife's name is Valerie. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. Oh, Uh, Carol Kane in this scene. Oh my god, she is fantastic. She's so, so funny. And
0: only has like four lines to deliver, know, and she does them with such conviction
12: absolutely it's the It's the way she upends that old wise woman archetype, like you said before victoria they they really play around with the roles that they're using in this the pieces on the board and i just I love the way she plays with this one she's not a witch; she's his wife that's her most important <laughs> actress. <characteristic. laughs>
10: I I have definitely started yelling that at Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a witch of you. You never had it so good. And then she's like, (laughs) but you are a witch. Uh, And I'm like, uh, okay, I can be both. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um.
0: They're effectively in this. They're breaking the story. They're going, right, Wesley was killed in what feels like something that shouldn't have happened in the story. Like, at this point, Humperdinck was supposed to continue in the pageantry of marrying... Uh, buttercup. But instead, he runs down to the pit of despair and kills Wesley in apparently the most painful possible way imaginable. In the book, which goes into a bit too much uh, detail regarding the torture, uh, he's he's taking his mind away elsewhere while he's being horribly hurt. But then this machine means he can't take his mind away. It's just pain everywhere. And just the It's actually kind of a masterstroke in the the film, having it just sort of like all running on this old mill wheel. It looks very painful, but it's also not lacerations and crushing and ruination of the body. It's, it's got this kind of mad scientist vibe to it, which makes it just acceptable enough for kids whilst being very frightening. But like I said, it feels like the story somehow breaks and goes in another direction, and that going to Miracle Max is a way of getting us back on track. Like, Wesley was not supposed to die, just as Fred Savage said. No, 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 Wesley doesn't die. Uh, and the whole... He killed, you know, He he's supposed to kill Humperdinck and then the grandpa confronting him with just the horrific idea when you're a child of nobody kills Humperdinck, he lives and he's telling the truth to just to confound the idea of justice when you're that age is one of the scariest things imaginable. That's why Lyra lost her innocence when Trump came into power, because it just, it felt so wrong. It broke the world in the same way that this broke the Princess Bride, but it breaks it in the right way in the story.
8: Children have a sensibility that makes them, because of their their point of view, they require justice Rather than mercy, like a, a sense of like ruthless justice, mm. and while while what the grandfather isn't necessarily talking about that, like we by the time we get to Humperdink living, the movie does make it feel like the more earned punishment than just simply killing him because you know he's the, he they don't actually inflict the pain on him, but they do make him into less of what he was like he, he is belittled almost physically by these characters. And so getting to see that sort of come up and says even more satisfying in a way, it's also a compelling differing viewpoint of, of, of how we tend to like view what we want from characters at differing ages and how this movie specifically says, we're going to lay some track down and you might not think that's where you want to go, but it is.
6: Yes. sir. Huh.
5: We're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, Sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? Sixty-five. Sheesh. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This
6: is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. His children are on the brink of starvation. Are uh, you a rotten liar? I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years.
5: Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead, he can't talk. Ooh, look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Hey! Hello, and there! Hey! What's so important? What you got here that's worth living for? True
6: love. True love? You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that.
5: Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is ripe. It's so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said, to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards and he cheated. Liar! 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 Get back, witch! I'm not a
2: witch. I'm your wife. But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be that anymore.
5: You never had it so good.
2: To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say another word, Valerie. He's afraid. Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd
5: you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. What? Humperdinck? Ha!
9: Humperdinck! Humperding!
5: Humperding!
9: Stiegen! I'm not listening! Love lies
14: expiring and you don't have the decency
5: to say why. You won't help.
6: Nobody's hearing nothing.
10: Humperding! Humperding!
6: This is Buttercup's true love. If you heal him, he will stop Humperding's
5: wedding. Shut up! Wait, wait. i make him better Humperdink's office?
6: Humiliations galore. Ha, ha, ha!
5: I did a lick bell, nation. That is a noble cause. Give me the 65. I'm on the job. Hello.
6: That's a miracle pill.
9: The chocolate coating makes it go down easier. But you have to wait 15 minutes for full potency. And you shouldn't go in swimming after for at least, what?
5: An, an hour. Yeah, an A hour. good hour. Yeah. Thank you for everything. Okay.
9: Bye-bye, boys!
5: Have fun storming the castle!
9: Think
5: it'll
0: work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye! And ultimately, it's it's uh, as you say, it's Inigo who decides to unbreak the story because he realises he is insufficient for the task at hand. He needs to get revenge on Count Rugen. He can't do that on his own. Uh, Fezzik is insufficient. The one person who was able to beat Vizzini, they decide, is going to be the one person who can help them. So him being dead is, this is not fair. It, it, that, that's the point where the story just feels like it's gone off the rails, you need to rescue it. And that, there's something comforting about the idea that they do, that they do in fact succeed, that they do, that he is only mostly dead and that they are actually, it's, it's almost better than the happy ending, just the idea that the worst can happen and you can kind of think your way around it. There are things that can be done.
3: To the death!
0: No!
13: To the pain. I don't think I'm quite familiar with that phrase. I'll explain. And I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. That may be the first time in my life a man has dared insult me. It won't be the last. To the pain means the first thing you lose will be your feet below the ankles. Then your hands at the wrists. Next your nose. And then my tongue, I suppose. I killed you too quickly the last time. A mistake I don't mean to duplicate tonight. I wasn't finished. The next thing you lose will be your left eye followed by your right. And then my ears, I understand. Let's get on with it. Wrong! Your ears you keep and I'll tell you why. So that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing, will echo in your perfect ears. That is what the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, pig. I might be bluffing. It's conceivable, you miserable, vomitous mass. I'm only lying here because I lack the strength to stand. Then again, perhaps I have the strength after all. Time up. Make it as tight as you like. Oh! Where's Fesick? I thought he was with you. No. In that case, mm-hmm. help him.
12: Why does Wesley need helping?
4: Because he has no strength. I knew it. I knew you were bluffing. I knew he was bluffing.
11: There is, however, a bit of this that has always mildly unsettled me, and mm-hmm. that. The description of the torture machine and what it does is that it takes away years of your life. Mm -hmm. So they do set it up to 50, which just leaves me always with the slightly melancholy idea that Buttercup and Wesley are going to get to be together. But then Wesley's going to die in like 10 years because he's going to be the equivalent of 90.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, In the book... Uh, It's described as uh, Count Rugen has taken 20 years off his life. He only had 20 years left. And that means that uh, when it was shunted to uh, full power, he lost all of that in one go. So technically, whatever life he has is all gained from the giant chocolate pill that Miracle Max gives him. And it also kind of you could interpret that as him defying the threads of fate. Like it is indeterminate how long he will live at this point.
11: That's a slightly more hopeful way of looking at it.
7: Yeah. Well, I'm a writer. <laughs>
8: <laughs> the way I appreciate it
7: describes...
8: The... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just the, just the way it describes, Um, because to kind of um, jump off of what you were saying, that it's it sucks years of his life away, that's a very smart way of making the torture feel like it's violating something yeah. without being graphically explicit, because it's it's taking things away from you but it's doing so with like water and suction cups. So it doesn't feel quite as grossly. Yeah. It's not mutilation
0: invasive. or bone breaking.
8: Exa- like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it, it could still definitely traumatize like, you know, a, a child if they see this too young, but it's, it's something that you can still wrap your head around without being completely like, ew.
0: there was one equivalent moment in fable two, which is not the same at all, but um, you're being tortured and it's sucking your experience away. And the longer you allow yourself to get tortured, the more you've been fighting for nothing because all of this experience gets taken permanently and never given back. Uh, So it's that that at least gives you sort of a conception that rather than just it's a a creative way of implying something being taken rather than simply damaged.
12: It's it feels a bit. I'm trying to think of the right word here like there's a mythical element to it as well there's there's something about making it very clear that somebody is losing something that they can't see it's up there with the scene in stardust where they're bargaining for the flower See anything you like
13: Um definitely <laughs> I mean what 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 I what I meant was The, these ones, the the blue ones. How how much
12: are they? They might be the colour of your hair. Or they might be all of your memories before you were three. I can check if you like. Anyway, you shouldn't buy the blue bells. Buy this one instead. Snowdrop. It'll bring you luck.
13: But what does that cost?
12: This one. Costs a kiss. Yeah, the idea that you're you're trading something and giving away something that you may not ever really be aware that you lost.
0: Stardust is very much a spiritual successor to uh, Princess Bride, and no bugger saw it. It's one of uh, Matthew Vaughan's finest films.
7: Yeah, the, there is this element to the world building in the Princess Bride that is kind of cavalier and abstract but in a way where the characters are always willing to go along with things that need to exist for this story to happen so the machine exists because they need a way for wesley to you know be be tortured and be killed that is still friendly to kids and miracle max needs to exist because there has to be a way to bring him back or else the final act can't happen
11: yeah but also they're established to have exist previously one of the reasons miracle max works so well is that he's got this personal vendetta against the prince that portrays some history that you don't see but you get a good enough sense of with their arguments
7: yeah, it goes back to that looseness that like, you could be mistaken for thinking that a lot of the elements of this movie were improvised because it, it feels that way when the, uh, when the characters and the actors are delivering those, those lines
6: my god he's
7: climbing
3: he's got a very good arms
6: He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means.
4: You there, boy. I ain't no boy, I'm a man. A man of the night. I don't think that means what you think it means. A
0: nearby horse seemed to say. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to Twitter and we're going to read out your reasons, folks, for why this film has such well uh, the way i phrased it is the princess bride has quality baked into every morsel it's a challenge to pin down just one reason so many people hold it in the highest respect because there are so many tell us why you love it and we might read your tweet out when we record this week so what we're going to do is we're going to go around the horn uh me sharon victoria brendan Mackenzie, nathan and we'll just read out as many of your answers as we can in let's give it 10 minutes shall we So uh, the first one is uh, Mike Hearn. It's such a pure and unique experience. I cannot think of one movie like it. The two movies in one part has been done, but not even close to the same style, effectiveness, or quality. Feels a bit like Joss way before there was a Joss, guessing it was a key influence. Sharon, yours is Betts.
12: Uh, so from Betts, it has honestly everything you need in a movie, action, romance, comedy and triumph. It's endlessly quotable with an endearing and lovable cast, a near perfect adaptation of the source material and one of the best feel good movies there is. It can't be better. It's inconceivable. Inconceivable. I found oh, well. Michelson naps. Well, it's well acted, told and Told,
11: shot, and written, and I love it for those reasons too. It's a film that's sincere at every level of its inspection and dedicated to love and goodness. The love between Wesley and Buttercup uplifts and makes better themselves and those around them, in the film and out.
10: One Night is a Justice Accolade. I know the reference. Anyway, <laughs> I understood that from- reference because not only is every other line a perfect jewel but it feels like everyone had so much fun making it That's true. I think it was the first movie I saw that managed to combine fantasy humor drama and meta humor also it predicted 2020 but I disagree that masks are comfortable
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> correct sadly
8: Brendan for Sam McConkey. there's something in it for everyone and it also has a timeless quality to it it's sincere heartfelt funny and substantive in equal measure the self-awareness helps too
0: Okay, Nathan can you find Toby slams head on desk Jungius
7: I saw and fell in love with the film much later than most I was feeling exceptionally ill and asked people for recommendations for sick day viewing Ooh, and a friend said this was practically made for that purpose they were so right it's comforting uplifting inspiring and charming and that's just the first four things which come to mind even on a first viewing it feels like a treasured story you've heard before from a loved one by the end you know this far. From, this is far from the last time you'll seek it out
0: Kat Essman says, We used to joke that my parents were their generation's Wesley and Buttercup. They were just always right together. It's why when I got married my dad was gone, but my mom walked me down the aisle to storybook love. Ah, the song from the end of this. My husband ended his vows with, as you wish. Oh.
12: That's beautiful. You made my heart
0: go pity Pat.
12: Oh. Uh, Michael B. Sordin every, nice every girl in my middle school loved Wesley I was jealous until I saw it And he became an all-time hero in my eyes Still one of the few movies I would still watch today Without feeling like I'm wasting time
0: What you gotta do is threaten to smack girls in the face They love that <laughs> <laughs> That's the one bum note in this film Victoria Hunter?
10: I loved it as a child because it was so quick-witted and just a bit odd. The characters said and did things the characters in other movies didn't.
0: Very true. That's where the colloquial feel of the uh, language and the also thinking around the narrative and going, right, if I do this, then you're going to do that. So like, it's like a chess game with a lot of characters. And that, like, having characters be cunning is very endearing. Again, that's how George R. R. Martin makes his bread and butter. Brendan, Zach Malm.
8: It directly sculpted my taste in media through how it prioritised the characters being sincere through all the hijinks that ensued. These are people who contain multitudes, and that allows the story to effortlessly shift from adventure to romance to drama and back again.
0: People who contain multitudes, that's that interior life uh, we mentioned earlier, the the idea that a person is no one thing. So Fezzik is this giant you wouldn't expect to be really into rhymes. But if you read the book, there's, uh, there's more about him as a child growing up being quite timid and not really understanding why um, people didn't like him. And his greatest fear is just being booed at. So... When he used his uh, fighting abilities to fight champions, people would boo him because he was obviously bigger and stronger. So he found that the best way to get the best reaction out of people was to fight groups. Um, Fighting gangs for local charities. I love that line! Just the idea of, we've had a whip round, could you possibly fight this gang? Uh, Mackenzie, Beta?
11: As you wish. Honestly, this movie is so painfully lovable that I would pay any amount for a recording of Peter Falk just reading the book to me as grandpa.
0: Sharon just found that you can get the audiobook read by Rob Reiner, which is close to Peter Falk. He's got a lovely voice, although when I watched it um, uh, with the commentary the other day, it was like, why is Marty DeBerge, the inept director of This Is Spinal Tap, presenting this movie? Oh, it's actually Rob Reiner, of course, and I had to keep telling myself that's, that, that Marty De DeBerge doesn't exist. He is, much like the Princess Bride, a meta narrative in himself. Also, if you look very, very carefully, uh, you'll see Marty's cap is on uh, Fred Savage's lamp. It's at the very, very end in particular. You can definitely see it. And that was a rider that Mark Knopfler said, I will score your movie, but you've got to include that cap somewhere. From that, we can extrapolate that Mark Knopfler, the lead singer-guitarist of Dire Straits, really liked This Is Spinal Tap.
11: It's also worth noting, I think, And this is something I only just noticed, this viewing, that there's a bunch of Christmas stuff in Fred Savage's room, so this is also a Christmas movie if you need an excuse to watch it.
0: Nice. Yeah, that Santa, that demonic-looking Santa on his wardrobe. So much of this was filmed in England, and that was so convincing as an American boy's bedroom. It's an excellent set dressing. There's a shot at the end where when the grandpa turns back and goes, as you wish. That was the only shot taken in L.A., the the dis- The illusion that he's still in the same room and that nothing's changed is absolute. And speaking of filming in England, Humperdinck's Castle is located about an hour and a half's drive from us in Matlock in Derbyshire. Chris Finnick would be read
7: by... has Nathan, Nathan, have you gone? It serves a bridge between fairy tale and a more narrative fantasy. The power of true love is real, but so does terrible... Uh, So is terrible grief and bloodthirsty greed. The heroes fight for truth and justice while the villains are real politicking like they stepped out of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones! Also, it's masterfully written. (laughs) It's been 30 years and still the most quotable movie of all time. It's inconceivable that it's been 30 years.
11: Which I think this movie deserves mad props for still being funny after 30 years because comedy just generally ages so poorly and this deserves just all the kudos for just being enjoyable at all anymore.
0: Actually, there's a line in the book, um, you know, when I said that uh, Buttercup was, um, that there were slowly women who were more beautiful than her, being le- becoming less beautiful as she rose to the top of this mountain. One of them was uh, a king who fell in love with the maid, uh, who was beautiful, and the queen got jealous and start- started leaving uh, this girl's weakness, which was chocolates, lying around the palace. And so she ate and ate and ate and eventually became very, very chubby. Uh, And then the king fell out of love with her. But it then goes on to say that uh, she married and and lived happily ever after and her husband and she uh, enjoyed food the whole time, indicating that her being fat didn't make her less beautiful to her husband It was the king's problem in this scenario, which is remarkably right on for right now. Megan Olsen says, The characters in this film are so memorable and imminently quotable, I hear people using lines from it in my daily life. You'll fall in love with each so easily, and they're charming and fun. The movie is quirky, whilst also having an amazing message of love conquering all. Sharon, Kevin Kevin C.V.
12: Kevin C.V. says, I loved how subversive it was compared to the average fairy tale-like story. The best example I can think of regarding that was Wesley not being 100% fighting fit after being resurrected.
0: That's another, th- like, one of the brilliant things about the ending. Um, you get that big sword fight for between the two characters you want to see sword fight, Rugen and uh, Inigo, and you get that Catharsis of that revenge uh, drama there. And it's, you shouldn't be that happy that Rugen's being murdered, but it does feel like something's being released. Again, the book has more details on exactly how obsessed with making this beautiful sword Inigo's father was and how close the two of them were and how much Inigo loved his father. And then just having Rugen go, nope, and then cut him through the heart to uh, just take him out of the picture. Just And how life-shattering that was for an ego. So it does feel like that was a righteous kill at the end. But then Wesley, rather than just dueling Humperdinck, because we've seen one fantastic duel and one running battle, beats him in a battle of wits and bluffs his way through. It's that... that A character winning by cunning is also really empowering the kids who aren't all that physically powerful. So they're like, actually, I could bullshit my way to victory. This is really nice. Uh, Victoria, Michael Emig.
10: It has a clear wit that never detracts from or clouds its enthusiastic earnestness with cynicism. It's a sense of humor very similar to that of Sir Terry Pratchett, and for that, I adore it.
0: Agreed. Very agreed. Uh, Brendan, uh, just
8: Sam.
10: Well, this one has an animated jife to it. Yeah, That's it says
8: rodents of unusual you. size. All right. A beautiful story with an endearing cast of characters with fantastic comedic timing. Rodents of unusual size? I don't, I don't think, think, think they, they exist. exist. Nah! Slam! <laughs> Lyra said today,
0: Republicans of unusual shittiness? I don't think they <laughs> exist. Austin Wilden.
8: I saw it for the first time during a movie day in middle school. The dialogue and the characters were so sharp and memorable that it felt like a story that had always been with me, finally taking form.
0: David Andrew Gaddis.
10: Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles? Peter Falk sums it up. Why would you ever not believe Peter Falk? And Greg says because he never remembers where his glasses are. Is that a Columbo thing? He does look for his glasses whenever he first sits down to read. Got it. He like
8: pats every pocket before finding them. Nice. Put Yourself Out
0: of Range says...
8: The Princess Bride has tongue-in-cheek playfulness mixed with heartfelt sincerity and walks a careful balancing act between the two without letting one overwhelm the other. A lesser version of the film could either take itself too seriously or descend into mean-spirited farce. Chris Pestecchi says...
11: I can't think of any other movie that can dance as deftly along the line between
12: satire and sincerity.
0: Nice. Trevor Fitzpatrick smiling politely...
12: I love The Princess Bride because it's self-aware without being a parody of itself, and it illustrates the beauty of good storytelling.
0: Stephen Baz Clennell.
8: Because it perfectly captures the feeling you had as a child of discovering an amazing story and stopping everything else to devour it. And because, even though I've seen it hundreds of times and I'm now old and cynical, it still gives me a warm glow, like Brek*.
0: Do you have Brek* in America? No, we don't. It's kind of like porridge. No,
12: it's kind of like the bits that are left when you've taken the porridge out.
0: You. Well, we eat it in England and it makes us glow orange. Uh, Stephen oh. Atwell.
12: Growing up, watched the fencing sequence between Anigo and the Dread Pirate Robert so many times I broke the tape.
0: <laughs> okay.
11: My friend the other day told me that the movie isn't as good without the tapeware.
0: Oh, <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> Uh, actually, I have uh, Sharon to thank for this one. You actually introduced me to this film. It's one of the yeah, few of that few you films showed me. That
12: I got to first. <laughs> yeah.
0: Other ones included, I think, um, "Pump Up the Volume." <laughs> that was great.
9: Yeah.
0: And Cry uh, Crybaby. No, you no Willow. Willow, come off it. Sorry. <laughs> and Crybaby, Crybaby which yeah. is eh. Douglas Van
7: Benekom.
10: I love the humor and earnestness of the story. It really feels like a modern fairy tale.
7: Brian novak the dialogue is just so rich especially during the fight scenes and yes the battle of wits counts it really Mm -hmm. rewards folks who pay attention for instance when humperdinck identifies the iocane powder by smell yep (laughs) it has an underlying joy and humor and never insults the viewer it plays off tropes in a satirical manner but never in a malicious way it enjoys the world it lives in and wants you to enjoy it too
0: yeah that uh, never insulting the viewer is important like if you're going to mess around with stuff it has to be for the edification and the enjoyment and the uh engagement of the viewer otherwise if you're just like i'm going to mess with things and just hurt people that you care about
11: one of the things that's important with distinguishing good and bad satire a lot of the time is a love for the thing you're satirizing or at least a respect for it and thus clearly is so in love with fairy tales and adventure movies and it just wants to revel in their existence for a little while
0: Uh,
11: Pagliacci you're right this is hard maybe that I can't think of any adaptation that captures the essence of its source so well and even the grandson has a character arc
0: it's true and I was just about to get to that so that's how we're going to finish off and the last one is Danny Manili uh, which is why Twu Wav of course, which is an inordinately simple concept with deeply complex ramifications that is very generously displayed in this film. It feels soaked into it.
3: Farm boy, fill these with water. Please.
6: As you wish. That day
1: she was amazed to discover that when he was saying as you wish... What he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back.
11: Hold it, hold it. What is this?
9: Are you trying to trick me? Where's the sports? Is this a kissing book?
1: Wait, just wait.
9: When's it get good?
1: Keep your shirt on, let me read. Wesley had no money for marriage, so he packed his few belongings and left the farm to seek his fortune across the sea. It was a very emotional time for Buttercup.
10: I don't believe this. I fear I'll never see you again.
3: Of course you will. But what if something happens to you?
13: Hear this now. I will always come for you.
12: How can you
3: be sure?
13: This is true love. You think this happens every day?
0: At the beginning, the boy goes, is this a kissing book? And then at the end, the uh, grandfather's like, ah, oh, they kiss, you know, you, you don't want to know about it. And the, and the kid's like grabbing him, going, no, 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 I need this, satis- I want satisfaction. Like, like, deliver me this love. And the idea that A cynical kid could kind of open his heart a little. It's not over-egged, but it's the subtext of the film. Like, we are hard-hearted, cynical people. This was delivered in the 80s when everyone was cynical. It was Generation X who reveled in not caring about stuff and at the same time caring a lot too much about the cartoons we watched when we were kids and obsessing about the details. But um, the idea that he could go from you know, just dismissing all, all of the lovey-dovey stuff to actually to, to jump over that sense of powerful connection and that sense of, um, in this case, it's this sort of glorious victory that they're... I mean, it's, it's not coincidental that when they jump out of the window, they ride away on four pure white horses. They've effectively rescued... Because those are Humperdinck's horses. They have rescued purity from the clutches of corruption and for that to be what wins at the end makes a bold statement and for the kid to respond to that is bolder still
8: and that's what I was talking about when I was mentioning how this is almost like how Edgar Wright calls his shot like the the bit where grandpa says maybe you won't mind so much when you're older hmm. that is 100% the, the bit in Shaun of the Dead where like okay go get Liz go get mom go to the Winchester and wait for this to blow over <laughs> <laughs> that's the movie. Have a cup of tea. They just told you the movie and then they get there and you're like, yeah, no, I want to see that kiss. We have earned that kiss. We didn't earn the kiss before he leaves. That's mm. why you don't see it because the kids like, no, I don't want to hear that. We that's, that's him saying the audience hasn't earned that. The film hasn't earned that relationship yet, but we will.
0: Nice. This was a wonderful show. Has anyone else got anything to add regarding The Princess Bride? Now, when we could go into all kinds of little alcoves, we've barely talked about Yellen.
10: I I have one final thing I wanted to mention, which is essentially what I would have responded to you on Twitter had I not been invited onto the show. Mm -hmm. As much as I love this movie and as much as I've seen it a million times, it reminds me of the relationship I had with my dad in like a really specific way. Because when I was a little girl, we would actually go on these long walks out into the woods and find little groves where it was me, my dad, my mom, my sister, and he would read to us. Um, specifically, it was The Hobbit that he read most of the time. Nice, heartwarming kind of memory of like the better days with my family that the opening of this movie with the grandfather coming in and starting to read to you know, Fred Savage. Uh, it just reminds me so much of that, like every time. And it puts me in such a, like, like a warm, happy, like headspace just at the very beginning of it. And it just carries it the whole way through.
7: Uh, there's a section in the book at the very beginning as part of the framing device where Goldman is talking about how uh, the reason that he wants to abridge and adapt the story is because of how much it meant to him, and there's this whole section where he details how he tried to get his his son to read it when he was a kid, and he couldn't get into it because it was the original. Uh, And there's this section where he just talks about how the power of a story can shape a life in such a meaningful way. And The Princess Bride is, in like any iteration, is one of those stories. And especially for me as a kid, I was exactly the right age when i found it and as someone who was already kind of into fantasy what's interesting about the princess bride uh, what's great about the princess bride is that it allows someone to enjoy the kid at the beginning of fred savage's character doesn't care about the romance he is sold on the story by the the action and the adventure murdered by pirates is good as he says at the beginning (laughs) but what he cares about by the end is that romance is the characters he builds that empathy for them and that is what he wants by the end of the of the movie and it's rare that you have a piece of media that allows someone who is uh more masculinely inclined to be able to engage with something like romance in that way, and that was something that I think is that the Princess Bride did for me. It, it allows, as a young boy, it allows you to entertain romantic notions that are not, you know, capital R adventure romance, but romance in a more intimate sense.
8: Yeah, this I can kind of trace this movie back to being the the ur text of me getting invested in romantic adventure, not just, Hey, swords are cool. Anything with swords. I'm a huge romantic at heart. And this, this is a large part of why, because it's about, Hey, this is, this is people we care about and we want them to be happy and we want them to be happy together. It's a good kissing story.
11: (laughs) (laughs) It is a good kissing story. They have been in and out of development on a potential musical version of this since the original came out and I don't know if it would be any good or not but I will never not be a little bit sad that I can't hear people singing about this movie
12: Oh, Lin-Manuel Miranda for Anigo? Oh. Yes oh. Now I'm even more angry and sad it's Angry? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe someone will suggest it to him and he'll write one
0: My name is Anigo Domingo Montoya I'm a scholar of the blade Some say wizard, I say
10: either way, self-made <laughs>
7: El Brooks Miracle Max.
10: Yes. <laughs> so I, I randomly, when I was researching this, I found a listing of um, they did a reading at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art uh, some year, like, I think, a couple years ago, and the names of some of the people who came in and did the reading for certain characters, like Paul Rudd as Wesley, um, Carrie Elway's came back to play Prince Humperdinck, uh, oh. uh, Pat Oswalt is Vizini. Oh. And uh, Rob Reiner came back, uh, uh, voiced the grandfather, and Fred Savage came back to revoice the grandson. Oh, that's so sweet. It, it's just hey, weird. I'm a
0: grandson now.
10: <laughs> I had
11: to re like resist my urge to say Fred Savage has a very punchable face for this entire podcast because <laughs> it's an inside joke that most people don't get.
14: Kind of from Marvel movies. We are Marvel. Yeah, but you know you're. Marvel licensed by Fox it's like if the Beatles were produced by Nickelback it's music but it sucks hey that's it I'm done I've had it with all this Nickelback hating right you think that makes you cool with the cool kids in school Fred no it just makes me right it doesn't they're overproduced formulaic ear garbage oh really you know who might disagree with that facts I thought we were just having fun I didn't realize it was you know you were um you gotta say you were nicer as a kid Tired of living like a blind man. Sick of sight of a sense of feeling.
1: This is how you remind me of what I really am. This is how you remind me of what I really am.
0: One of the last things we're going to leave you with is the cinematic trailer for The Princess Thieves. I composed this recently to play for an interested executive, and I believe it captures the spirit of my book and its audio drama that owe both so much of themselves to this wonderful film and wonderful book Goldman and Reiner and Elwes and Wright and Patinkin and Sean and Andre and Sarandon and Guest and Crystal and Kane and Falk and Cook and Smith and even little Frederick Savage. So much of the Princess Thieves owes itself to them. Stand and deliver! Ah, what? Okay, Thin White Duke, prepare to have a thrilling story of a brush with death to tell all your high society friends, because you are, as of now, being held up by Robin of the Hood. you blackguards!
12: Are you really Robin of Locksley?
0: Yes, I certainly am. Necklace and brooch, please, milady.
12: I thought he died a thousand years ago. This fellow's an
9: imposter.
0: Oh, what an adorable child. Well, you tell all your little friends. Robin Hood is back. Watchmen coming, Rob.
9: Oh, yuck. It's a filthy great
0: archer. <laughs> right, that's us.
9: There's a snap in the air. Can you smell it?
12: No, just cat. I, I caught it know. when you opened the window. Out there, my darling. Out there Adventure is waiting for us. Through the cobblestone streets of London, past dark
1: alleyways where dark plots are hatched every minute.
9: Ugh, we've talked about
1: this. We agreed that last time really would be the last. You could have been seen,
12: kidnapped, killed. I'm not talking about sneaking out to the fights. I mean to go beyond the alleyways. Sneak further, to the outskirts of London and beyond that and further still, out into the wild countryside. There we shall find the real world. And the real people, far from these boring courtiers, silk sheaths and poxy-jeweled eggs. That's where I want to roam. You're forgetting, Gwen. I came
1: from the real world, as you put it. I know exactly what sort of person lives there, and it's nobody
8: you want to meet.
0: Well, that wasn't just any woman. It was Princess Gwendolyn.
8: You're out of your mind.
0: Somehow, she's out and about in London. And she likes a fight.
8: I can't believe you're about to say what I'm pretty sure you're about to say. I'm definitely
0: about to say it. I can't believe it. Royal Kidnap. She's right there for the taking. Have you any idea how much gold we could get? Excuse me, your majesty. Frightfully sorry to have to do this, but I'm going to have to ask you two to come with me. (gasps) Christ! Stand still. No, you'll hit me. You little rat. That's hurtful. Honestly, this didn't go at all how I planned. I never knew you could do this. I was watching you fight earlier. You're amazing. I mean, for a girl. Come on, calm down. I promise I won't kidnap you. I can't. Come here. You've won, princess. You can escape now. I
12: don't want to escape. I want you brought to justice.
0: Let go of me! No. Let go of me. No. Please?
12: Oh, alright. Really? No.
0: Find my daughter. Bring her back to me.
12: Or what if things get very difficult?
0: I want those responsible punished in ways that haunt the nightmares of all who learn of their fate.
12: Do you know where you are, girl? Camelot? Yes. The sword is here. May I see it? Please? Course you can, love. It's the first thing most people go to.
0: You know, I kind of hoped you'd be the one to pull the sword from the stone. Somebody has to save this city.
12: (sighs) Oh, sod it. I thought that would work. Would you like to see an interesting horse before you go? Yes. Then follow me. (laughs) Oh, aren't you a handsome thing?
4: Piss off. Oh. I know when I'm being patronized. Meg, don't waste my time again this week.
3: This is a princess of England. Could you be nice just this once? Nope. It talks.
12: Yes. If you succeed in convincing him to stop, tell me how. Give him this. Thank you. Would you like this apple?
4: Red apples given to princesses by strange old ladies. No, I bloody wouldn't. Do you have a sandwich?
12: So how
1: did you come to learn to talk?
4: It really is a very remarkable story. You see, at an early age, I was bitten by a radioactive linguist.
5: Nag.
4: I'm just a talking horse, all right? The Princess Thieves.
0: A swashbuckling fantasy action comedy by Alexander Shaw.
1: Black Shark, this is my
4: city. And yet architecturally speaking, it's really quite inconvenient sometimes, you know, when you're stalking the night as its dark bringer of justice.
12: There we are. Now don't worry, the twitching will stop in a bit. Yes, it's horrible, isn't it? Shush now. We're going to take a trip to the nice people at the Tower of London. You've been causing the watch quite a bit of exasperation.
4: It's not who I am under this mask, but who I am when I'm in the mask, when... Oh my legs! My legs! Oh, the
9: back! The back as well!
0: And The Princess Thieves is available via Bandcamp or in Kindle and paperback form. And School of Movies is funded by Patreon. And our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasko, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Hui, David Shealy, Kevin Vay, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak. Evan Jankowski Sarah Montgomery Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson Tyler Long Joe Gesega Greg Downing Tim Rosensky Christopher Wolfe Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman Timothy Green Matthew A. Siebert Joseph Gluck Nick Ord Duran Barnett Tom Painter Finn Nicole, Jameis Enright Mark Lutsch Dan Mayer Joe Crow Chris Finnick Toby Jungius Dave Hickman Aaron Lecluse Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi and Lorraine Chisholm and an extra big thank you to Chris Finnick who sponsored this episode's creation turned out to be one of our best Chris thank you Uh, before we go, where can people find the recent work that you are most proud of? Uh, let's start with Brendan.
8: You can uh, find me at normanerd.blogspot.com or follow me on twitter.com uh, at blcagnu. I've recently been contributing to Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. If you search on Synapse on guard, I and a compatriot of mine did a, a two-part sword fight rundown of like our favorite cinematic sword fights and of course the princess bride had a a feature a feature role in that um and i have also just recently guested on the matinee heroes podcast on their rocky episode i'm i'm pretty proud of that because we talked some good rocky on that their podcast
0: okay uh nathan and Mackenzie.
7: uh you can find me on twitter at bert nerd tram and you can find the rainbow connection on Twitter at Muppets Pod, which is a podcast where we talk about Muppets movies and TV shows.
11: My Twitter is at Kenzie Phoenix and our other show that we're doing right now is uh, Video Game, the Movie, the Podcast which has a few episodes up if you want to find that at VGTM
10: Podcast.
0: And Victoria.
10: You can find me on Twitter at Vixen Witch, but two V's instead of a W because I like to live deliciously. (laughs) Uh, I don't Ha- I, Dost work... thou like
0: the taste of butter? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
10: well, you know, for quarantine, I have stored up a lot of it. Anyway, okay. um, most of the work that you can readily find of mine, you can find on this very feed. I don't have any podcasts or places to write, although given how much time I have on my hands, boy, I'd like one. Um, <laughs> so if anybody needs guests, I'd be happy to uh, <laughs> to help out
11: interested are you in watching Resident Evil?
10: I have an amazing story about the first Resident Evil, actually.
11: We'll have some discussions with our other co-host.
10: <laughs> okay, cool.
11: Of
0: course, this is for your video game, the movie podcast, so it's... Oh, you've got some work to get through. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs>
10: Look, Before you get to
0: Detective Pikachu... Next week, the commission season continues as we will be talking 1999's Mystery Men with Victoria again and M from Verbal Diorama. I've been Alex Shaw.
12: I've been Sharon Shaw. And have, have fun, fun storming, storming the castle.
0: <laughs> Think it'll
11: work? It'll take a miracle. It would take a miracle.
9: the charms she did possess Now this did happen once upon a time When things were not so complex And how he worshipped the ground she walked And when he looked in her eyes he became obsessed My love is like love was stronger than the power so dark A prince could have within his keeping His spells to weave and steal a heart Within her breast but only sleeping My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as
3: to wait before if we know the miracle works
13: your guess is as good as mine i'll beat you apart i'll take you both together
3: i guess not very long
13: why won't my arms move you've been mostly dead all day
6: we have miracle max make a pill to bring you back
13: who are you are we enemies why am i on this wall where's buttercup let me explain no there is too much let me sum up
6: Water copies Mary Humperdinkel in a little less than half an hour. So all we have to do is get in, break up the wedding, steal the princess, make our escape. After I kill Count Ruga. That doesn't mean much
13: time for dilly Danny. You just wiggle your finger. That's wonderful. I've always been a quick eater. What are our liabilities? There is but one work in Castlegate. Come
6: on. And it is guarded by
13: 60 men. And our assets? Your brains. As there's a strength, I steal. That's it? Impossible. If I had a month to plan, maybe I could come up with something for like this.
3: You just shook your head. That doesn't make you happy?
13: My brains, his steel and your strength against 60 men, and you think a little head jiggle is supposed to make me happy? Hmm? I mean, if we only had a wheelbarrow, that would be something. Where do we put that wheelbarrow of the albino head?
3: Over the albino, I think.
13: Why didn't you list that among our assets in the first place? <sighs> what I wouldn't give for a Holocaust cloak.
6: There we cannot help you.
3: What this do? How did you get that? At Miracle Maxis? It fits so nice, as I could keep it.
13: All right, all right. Come on, help me out.
3: Now I'll need a sword eventually.
13: Why? I can't even lift one true but that's hardly common knowledge is it. thank you. now there may be problems once we're inside. I'll say.